This is the Paul Kirtley Podcast, episode 51. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 51 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast. My guest today is Cliff Jacobson. Now, Cliff is one of North America's most respected outdoors writers and wilderness canoe guides. He is an outdoor skills instructor and a professional outfitter and guide, a canoeing and camping consultant and the author of more than a dozen top selling books on canoeing and camping. Now, if you are not a canoeist, if you're not a paddler and you're about to turn off because of the mention of canoeing, please stick around because Cliff's knowledge goes way beyond that. His approach is applicable to anything you do that involves camping in the wilderness really he's got a lot of experience and a lot of information and opinions to share and this is a fantastic conversation but a little bit more about Cliff just so you know who's going to be talking with me in 1962 he gained a degree in forestry from Purdue University from 63 to 65 Cliff was an artillery officer in the US Army and later he worked as an outfitter and canoe guide for the Science Museum of Minnesota. Canoeing, camping and sharing his experience has been a lifelong passion for Cliff. He seems to have paddled every river in North America, certainly in Canada. Whenever I mention a river to him he's paddled it. His wilderness experience is massive. Up until retirement Cliff taught middle school environmental science but since retiring has continued to spend much of his time canoeing and camping. At the time of recording this podcast Cliff is in his late 70s and he still actively canoes and camps on wilderness trips. He also continues to share his love for canoeing by writing and teaching about it and his continued passion comes through in spades in the conversation you're about to hear. In 2003, the American Canoe Association presented Cliff with the Legends of Paddling Award and inducted him into the ACA Hall of Fame. In 2009, Cliff was awarded the Distinguished Eagle Scout Award by the Boy Scouts of America. I first became aware of Cliff through his books, in particular Expedition Canoeing, which became something of a Bible for me in terms of my approach to how I outfitted and how I assembled what I needed for canoe trips. And I mean assembled in every respect. Later, I actually contributed a few photos to another of his books, a revised edition of Camping's Top Secrets. So it's my absolute pleasure to have Cliff on the podcast and to bring this conversation to you, the listener. Well, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Cliff Jacobson today. Hi, Cliff. How are you doing? There, Paul. It's finally good to uh, meet you, of course, sort of in real life across the pond there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. I mean, we've we've turned the cameras off now, but we're we're on Skype and it's been good to say to say hi virtually across the across the waves, across the Atlantic. So, yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while, Cliff, and you're well known to me. Um, I've enjoyed quite a few of your books and I have the honour of even having sent you one photograph for a revisit of one of your editions. But for those that maybe don't know you, 
maybe we could start by just having a little bit of a, a biographical chat. Now, you've 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 got a lot to talk about, Cliff, in terms of what you've done and where you've been. But could you m- maybe start by just telling us a little bit how you got into being uh, or having a career in the outdoors, basically? I know there's various strands to that, but it'd be great to, to hear how you started off and then we can dive in with, you know, a few different aspects to that, perhaps. Well, yeah, well, you know, I started out as a Boy Scout at 11 years old and I fell in love with it instantly, which um, uh, and then I worked my way up through became an Eagle Scout and so forth, went to camp and, you know, fell in love with with canoeing and camping. And interestingly, one of the things I learned along the way, because, you know, I've seen a lot of new people get into the sport. I've taken a lot of young people, kids, adults, so forth, out canoeing. And some people like it, some people love it, and some people just hate it. And um, I have two daughters, both of which hate canoeing. They, they, they do not like canoeing and camping, but they love their daddy to pieces. So, you know, one of the things I learned along the way that is never, never mentioned, I have firmly believe it's a gene. Uh, you're born with it and you have it or you don't have it. Mm. I think you can turn uh, through tripping. I think you can turn hate into tolerance, tolerance into like like into love, but you can't go from hate to love. So, you know, I would say to those folks that are out there that are parents that love canoeing and camping, if you have a child who doesn't like it, yeah, you should take them, try it, but if they persistently don't like it, you know what? They don't have the gene, mm. but the good news is they love you, and that's more important. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's just a, a little observation that I've had along the way. But I started canoeing and camping, and then I went in the Army. And then when I got out of the Army, I just fell, uh, fell in love with it, with the sport mm-hmm. again. And I started doing it on really pretty much a heavy-duty basis and uh, started leading trips in Canada for the Science Museum in Minnesota. And uh, we did a lot of trips. We did a lot of trips in the high Arctic, trips to James Bay, Hudson Bay, um, some of the western provinces. Uh, and as I did more and more of this stuff, I be- and I re- by the way, I, when I was a kid, I read every book in print on canoeing and camping. Everything. I mean, it, yeah, again and again and again. And as I began to get more and more experience, I began to realize that uh, – most writers spend more time in those days at the typewriter, of course today it's a computer, than they did outdoors. And and I, I started finding all kinds of errors in books, things that this isn't really how it is. And so I decided uh, that when I wrote, the stuff that I write was going to either be my experience or experience from people that I know and trust. Mm. And uh, no parroting from other books. And so I think that's one of the problems that uh, that some writers, outdoor writers have, is when a publisher uh, asks you to write a book, they tell you how long it has to be, and maybe the writer doesn't have the background to make it that long or finish out certain chapters, so they research. They steal stuff from other writers who have stole stuff, stolen stuff from other writers, and so it goes. So experience is 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 the best teacher. So I don't know. I, you know, one of the things that I've learned actually along the way is I'm a little guy. I'm not very big. I'm only five foot five inches tall, 
And um, I was watching, uh, for your listeners, uh, I was watching uh, Paul's video of him doing the Barrens River by himself alone. I've done the Barrens River, but fortunately, we had some big guys along that could carry the gear. That's a very not only a very remote river, but some of the portages are very, let's say, very interesting. Mm. You got to be a tough. You gotta, you gotta have some muscle to haul some of those big boats through those portages, which are basically not maintained at all. And um, so, to be a little guy like me, I mean, I'm 79 years old now. Okay, when I was in my 50s, yeah, I could carry those big boats. I could pick up a 75-pound canoe, no problem. Uh, you know, I can't do that anymore. So I've had to rely on skills. And I guess if I have a motto. It's skills are more important than things. Mm-hmm. And um, you can get by with pretty bad equipment and pretty minimal equipment if you're really good at what you do and you know what you're doing. And, and actually, I think this is something that um, the Brits seem to embrace more than Americans or Canadians uh, in the sense that uh, you guys over there seem to have – um, all kinds of programs for learning about canoeing and camping and the wild outdoors, even though comparatively to the U.S., uh, you don't really have much wild outdoors. Mm. But there seems to be a big interest in that there, uh, and the attitude seems to be, um, I need skills to do this. Yes, stuff is nice, but I really need the skills. Yeah. Whereas in the U.S. and Canada, it's different. Mm. It's, um, hey, man, you want to do it, you do it, okay? <laughs> Learn from the seat of your pants. So it's, I don't need any skills. I don't need, uh, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll learn from, the, like I said, I'll learn from the seat of my pants. So I think the Brits are really more, pro- probably, I think the word is skilled. I, I think the Brits probably, uh, on the whole, when they go to Canada, are probably better paddlers and better campers than most Americans and Canadians who who do that? Because I think they pretty much are into the skill thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I'd agree with you on the on the skill side with the paddling. Definitely, because we've got less space and we have shorter rivers, and they're maybe not not all of them, but you know, on average, maybe they're a bit steeper than the North American rivers because they don't go as long, but they still they have to get from the mountains to the sea over a shorter space. Then, yeah, we do tend to focus on technique and and maybe more technical but maybe less powerful stretches of water than perhaps um in on average in north america so i think that has something to do with the with the difference it's it's much harder just to throw your gear in a canoe and go and do a trip in the uk a multi-day trip um than it is maybe in uh, parts of Canada or parts of the US simply because either there's access issues in terms of land ownership and where you can camp and where you can't camp or because you need more skill to paddle the water that you can do those multi-day trips on and therefore it's back to getting the skills first um, but this, this, the, just one other thing on that something yeah. just sort of linking back to something we said before we started recording and uh, we talked a little bit about when you were over in the Welsh uh, the Welsh Canoe Symposium, and unfortunately I wasn't at that one, and I missed meeting you there. 
Um, but you noticed how there are these sort of structures in the UK in terms of the star system, so the sort of personal paddling proficiency awards. But the downside of those is something you said to me before we started recording, and I'd agree with you, is that some people feel like they can't do anything until they've kind of gone through those uh, systems. Right. That's one of the things that I would encourage British paddlers. I would say, you know, you don't need to punch your card to get to get to the next level what you need to do is get out there and practice mm. one of the things i did notice when i was at the welsh canoe symposium was uh, i mean you would never see this in the u.s but i and, and it was surprising to me at the symposium was here people are paddling around basically a pond okay <laughs> they were in helmets it's like come on give me a break you know the only time you're going to see a helmet on a U.S. or Canadian paddler, pretty much is in a closed canoe. Okay, if they're in a closed canoe or a kayak, they're going to be wearing a helmet. Mm -hmm. There are going to be some times that they will wear helmets, uh, but it's got to be, you know, you know you're going to be running class three plus stuff. Okay, um, so I think uh, what, I, what I did observe was it's nice to be safety conscious, but you don't have to be nuts with it. And, um, I, and and I, and when I was in the when I was at the the symposium, there, I thought there was a little bit of an overkill in in, in I think the safety was 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 going was going a, a little bit overboard. Mm -hmm. But you know that that's a difference. And you know, and the other thing is, I'm a I'm a Canadian river paddler. I love moving water, and that's what I love more than anything else. I I really don't like lake paddling, and I would say to people. Okay, here, if you want to go to Canada, you want to do any one of these terrific rivers in Canada like Paul, Paul does. You know, what you there's two things I think you really got to be develop a mastery at. One is the back ferry. Okay, and this is not something that's widely taught. Most whitewater paddlers view the back ferry as kind of a knee-jerk reaction. You know, they paddle these little six or eight-foot canoes they spin them around they go upstream they do uh, everything is uh, everything is if, if in danger turn upstream and ferry okay you can't do that with a big tripping canoe mm -hmm. so i don't know how much this is practiced uh on the rivers in the uk but i would say to you if i could just pick one thing that's going to save your life on a canadian river it's a know how to back ferry in very strong currents Okay, and know how to do an eddy turn and know how to get out of an eddy. Those yep. are the those are the three things. I mean, everything else is is like pretty much I, I think pretty much secondary. And you know, there's an old saying: if you don't have the accident, you don't have to treat it. So <laughs> the second part of it is judgment, and knowing what you can paddle, and knowing what you can't paddle, knowing what you have to walk around, what you have to line or carry around. And I don't know how much lining they do in the UK because I don't know what options you have uh, for that. But I would say to you, that's another major part of the equation if you're going to Canada yeah. and even some of the rivers in the US is practice lining. Do it on little currents and things. Uh, and see how much you can do by yourself with, with, with just a bow and a stern line because I said the lining and the back ferry and the eddy turns, those are the important things. And, you know, don't worry about the star rating, okay? Forget that. Worry about back ferry, forward ferry, 
eddy turns, lining, and being able to look at something and decide whether you can do it or not. The rest is just practice, quite honestly. It's mm-hmm. just practice, you know. And I would also add to that, and nobody really ever mentions it much, but um, you are only as good as the boat you paddle. Yeah. Uh, this uh, th- there's people who think, oh, he he or she is so good, you know, they could paddle a two by four, uh, you know, uh, through this rapid. Uh, there are some people that can do that, but it's pro- it, it's probably not you. I'll give you a kind of an interesting example. I'm into solo canoeing. I love my solo canoes. And I noticed in the UK, you guys don't have hardly any solo canoes. You paddle big tandem canoes. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of people who paddle 16-footers solo, which, again, is... And, and often empty, which is a nightmare if it's windy. It's just, and they're just big, you feel like you're in a big bathtub. I don't like it. I mean, my, I'm, I'm six foot one and I paddle, a, I've got a 15 foot canoe that I also put gear in. And that's as big as I like to paddle solo. Right, right. But, you know, it's, to be honest with you, it's, it's not fun. If you paddle the purebred solo canoe, it's like going from, uh, it's going from it, it's like going from a pickup truck or SUV to a Mazda Miata. Mm. That's what it's like. And once you paddle a true solo canoe, first of all, it teaches you a lot of things, uh, subtle things that you can't, really can't learn by paddling a big tandem canoe. Because by paddling a big tandem canoe, it's not like you're doing freestyle stuff and you're you're on the edge of this boat and you're twirling around a pond. No, you're in white water. So you're in white water, so that canoe is basically pretty level most of the time, mm-hmm. except when you're taking turns and you're healing it. But in the but because the canoe is so wide, there are certain things you can't do with it that, that you you can do with a true solo canoe. But I bring this up because I've paddled these little solo canoes for many, many years, and this was um, a couple of years ago. We paddled a river in uh, uh, Missouri called the Buffalo River. It's one of the nicest rivers in the U.S. It's one of the few rivers where you can camp anywhere you want, build an open fire anywhere you want. Uh, the scenery is right out of the old film Deliverance. <laughs> It's got some real nice rapids in it, but really nothing that rates above, I would say, moderate class two. Okay, But when we did the river, it was flood stage, literally high. They should have shut the river down. And the two guys I was paddling with, one of them was super paddling. I mean, this guy ran the Grand Canyon in the solo canoe. Uh-huh. My other friend, he paddles class four whitewater in a hot whitewater boat all the time. Say both those guys are way better than me. But here's the interesting thing. On this particular trip, they were both paddling similar canoes to mine. I was better than them. Mm-hmm. They were in trouble. I wasn't. And, I mean, by the end of the trip, they were a whole lot better. But still, at that point, I was better than them. Now, how could that be? It could be because I was very familiar with the boat I was paddling. I knew what it could do. I knew what it couldn't do. Those guys had moved from hot little whitewater boats into a completely different style canoe, and they were thinking at first that they could do with that canoe what they did with their hot whitewater boats. So I guess what I'm saying is success or the ability to, 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 be, a, to be an outstanding paddler or whatever is also canoe dependent. Uh. Uh, so, so what yeah, were so, you, what were you paddling there, Cliff? Can you remember what was the boat that you were very familiar with that they weren't? I was paddling a um, 
a Bell, a Yellowstone Solo, which is basically the same boat as the old Bell Wildfire. Right. Okay. It's a Kevlar, Kevlar canoe, 14 feet long. It's about 27 or 28 inches at the rails. Um, depth is about 13 or four, about 14 inches at the ends, 12 inches at the center. And we have spray covers on the boat, so we have spray covers on our on our solo canoes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and so one of the things you learn too if you go to a, a solo canoe is because you can put these boats so precisely and exactly where you want to put them, when you want to put them there, that even though they're smaller and they don't have the volume of paddling a tandem canoe solo, you can come through just about as dry because you can you can position it more precisely. Mm. You know, I was on a interestingly, I was on a um, one of the British uh, Facebook sites. I mm. can't remember which one it was, and I sort of brought up this thing. I said, "Hey, you guys, aren't there any purebred solo canoes in England?" And then some number of people responded and showed me some pictures. Uh, you know, so there are some, but one of the guys answered with what i thought was probably the real reason he said you know space is limited we don't have a lot of space to store uh store boats so basically we could we can only own one canoe so we pick a tandem canoe you know so we can go out with our family but then we can also paddle that alone uh you know that makes sense and i understand that you know you probably don't have a lot of space to store multiple canoes you can't have half a dozen yeah. canoes I, yeah, I, I think there's there is some truth in that definitely cliff um i mean the other thing as well is that the north american canoes are significantly more expensive in terms of you know what they cost versus someone's income over here than they are in north america um uh, partly because exchange rates have changed over time we've got tariffs on them now as well of course but even back in the day, you know, as Rolex got more and more expensive and the and the pound depreciated, a lot of those lighter boats, not not to mention the Kevlar boats, which are more expensive still, just got really super expensive over here. And so people are looking to try and, you know, sort of maximize what they can do for a given amount of spend as well. Yeah, you know, and I, you know, I sympathize with that because um, I'm uh, good friends with Ted Bell, who is the CEO of North Star Canoes, and I love North Star Canoes. And he said they don't think they can sell canoes in Europe anymore because of this uh, trade, uh, uh, or not the trade thing, that this putting, uh, you know, uh, tariffs, uh, the, because of the high tariffs now that have been added that have raised the price of these boats so high. Mm. So, you know, that's sad because I really love I mean, here in the United States right now, we have, as I see it, we have two canoe makers that are phenomenal, and that's North Star and Winona. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, I'd agree with you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just about everybody else. There's some other canoe makers here, but I, I don't, you know, I can't warm up to their boats. Let's put it that way. There are some smaller cottage industries that produce wonderful canoes, but as far as big manufacturers concerned, we got two. Uh, Canada's come on real strong. I mean, they've got some, if we were talking about Canada 20 years ago, I'd be laughing at their canoes because they were kind of ugly, old things that looked like they were made back in the 1800s. But, man, they're <laughs> way different now. Now they're producing some of the best canoes on the planet. 
So, you know, maybe, you know, you guys can probably buy canoes from Canada uh, with halfway decent price. Can you get Canadian canoes over there? Yeah, yeah, we can. So, you know, I mean, Winona are sold over here. It's hard to get hold of uh, North Star canoes over here. Um in terms of the ones you just talked about and then in terms of the canadian ones yeah i mean esquif are quite hard to get hold of there is somebody who imports them um uh, novacraft are, are reasonably well represented um just trying to think what else in terms of canadian stuff gets over here um and we do have a we've got a sort of growing uk canoe industry as well as with the likes of piranha who own venture canoes um which are all quite heavy boats um but they're inexpensive and so they're quite popular there there's silver birch canoes there's who canoes and uh, so there's a few sort of uk makers coming up and i think it's partly because of this issue of either just being able to get hold of the north american canoes or just the expense of them when you when you can yeah you know what i i think if i lived in the uk this was what I would do. If my dreams were taking me to rivers in Canada, Alaska, whatever, or, you know, we actually have some really great rivers in the U.S. too. Like I would say, like my favorite U.S. river is the Rio Grande, which runs along the Mexican border. It is a phenomenal river. And uh, most people who sort of thumb their nose at it they've seen too many old john wayne movies because the rio grande is not like that at all it's a mountain river and it goes mm -hmm. and it's got some big rapids in it and it's the most remote it's the most remote uh, uh the, the national park down there's the most re, uh, big bend national parks the most remote park in the u.s system it's 100 miles from the nearest town Okay. And uh, but it, it's an extremely remote, absolutely spectacular river. But getting back to what I was going to say, if I lived in the UK, I would have to. I would buy two canoes. What I would do, I would save my money and I would get a hot end Kevlar solo tripping canoe. Yeah, it would be expensive, but you know what? I'd never look back. The other thing I would buy is I'd get a folding canoe. I'd get a seventeen foot. Uh, pack boat or if I couldn't get that then I guess I'd get an alley personally I think the pack boats a much better boat than the alley but they're they're both fine mm -hmm. and then I would outfit that folding canoe the way I wanted so it's perfectly outfitted for me then I could go anywhere I could put it on a plane I could do the Rio Grande in the US I could do Canadian rivers I could do Alaska rivers and I wouldn't be renting one of these ugly barges that weighed 80 pounds and didn't have knee pads and it didn't have a yoke in it didn't have lining holes in the ends and so forth because I have a boat that was perfectly outfitted for me and for those listeners who paddle these folding canoes in rapids, hey, they're nothing to laugh at. Let me tell you, they're better in rapids than a hard boat. Uh, they actually are. They turn as well. They pop up higher. You run a ledge with them. They bend a little bit and come up over the top. You hit stuff with them. They're tough as nails and they're light. I mean, a 17-foot pack boat fully outfitted is 50 pounds. And it folds up into uh, uh, into a duffel bag. So I'd have that for my tandem canoe, and I could store that in my flat or wherever I lived. And I would have my hot solo canoe that I could play around and have fun with. That's what I would do. Oh, it's a good a good kind of barbell strategy of you know kind of go into the 
a bit further to each extreme. Um, and it's interesting. I I have to say I don't have any personal experience of paddling pack boats. I've just I've just never done rivers where they've been needed. Um, but I guess then more needed for those northern rivers that I'd like to I'd like to do at some point. Some of the the ones further north that I know you're more familiar with um, than many people. Um, but one of the things that turned me on to the pack boats recently was that when I was doing the Barrens in um when was it august 2019 um on my first full day on the river as i started down i came off off the lake that i landed in and into into the the river proper um i met a couple coming upstream they paddled up from barons river reserve wow. at the bottom and they were in a pack boat wow yeah wow well, you know, uh, it's it, it's hard. Uh, sometimes old ideas die hard. It's mm. hard for people mm. to believe that a folding canoe can be tough. It's hard for them to believe that it paddles like a real canoe. It does. In fact, my very first experience <clears throat> with seeing them, <clears throat> in fact, I may actually have had a reference to that in, <clears throat> in uh, my book, Canoeing Wild Rivers, uh, was we were on the Hood River which was then the Northwest Territories in Canada. Of course, now it's none of it. And uh, we were portaging around this rapid. This was a class three. This was a very solid class three rapid. And it was long and the waves were big. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of big boulders in it. And I, tickled, I said, no. So we portaged over this island. And then as we did, <clears throat> there were um, two canoes uh, with Norwegians in them that were in pack boats that just came right down through there. And I remember one of those canoes slammed a big boulder, must have a Volkswagen-sized boulder, and started to wrap a little bit on the boulder. And both these guys knew what they were doing. You know, they quickly leaned downstream, braced, and that thing popped off that boulder, just popped right off it and spun around, and they were fine. And I thought to myself, I've never seen these. Was, what are these things? I couldn't believe it. They were full of canoes. Those happened to be 50, they, those were 16 foot alleys, is what they were paddling. 16 is a little short for a Canadian trip, uh, but you know, it'll work if you paddle super duper light and you have a spray cover for it. But these were covered boats, they had covers on them. But the one, the other thing about the, the folding canoes is that high class two is really about the sensible end for an open, typical open canoe. Yeah. Then you've yeah. got water coming in. Okay, mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. a pack boat, you can go into low three and they'll be dry. So there's a much drier boat. They turn just as well. They ride a little higher in the water. Okay, and depending on how you pack them, uh, you can sort of decrease the rocker a little bit or increase the rocker a little bit. And, and, but I think they're just excellent, especially because they're so light. I mean, 50 difference between 50 and 80 pounds is a lot when you got to carry that thing absolutely so yeah they they are um they're they're and they're they're tough uh, i you know we've used them on a lot of rivers and actually a number of arctic rivers rivers that flow into hudson bay the only thing we ever we broke a seed on one that's about the only thing that's ever happened never even put a hole in one huh. so um, yeah they're they're pretty tough it's an option and I'm not sure it's um, more, ex I don't know what those uh, big uh, Royal X canoes cost over there, but I don't even know if it's that much of a more expensive option to go with a folding canoe. Once they're together, they're just as rigid as they can be. Yeah, and that's surprising. 
So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll have to uh, have to do a trip in one at some point. Yeah. So like I say, this this couple coming upstream on the Barrens, he'd been out for about seventy days. He'd done an, another river, and I actually forget the name of it now off the top of my head. But he'd done another river north of the Barrens. Um, uh-huh. He'd come down to the Barrens, swapped paddling partners, and then was going back sort of inland from there. So yeah. Yeah, interesting. And then he was, and he'd flown in and out, um, but he was taking the regular, he was going up to one of the um, Indian reserves and he was flying out on one of the regular flights out of that, off the airstrip, um, just with packing the boat down rather than having to get a float plane out and strapping it to the float. Well, you know, in that vein, there's something else for listeners to consider. Uh, If you decide you want to go to uh, Canada or Alaska, well, first of all, Alaska does not allow you to put any external loads on aircraft unless you have – well, you know, technically you can if you have a certain license and you've got a special rack. Okay, but n- none of these pilots are going to spend the money for one of these racks if they're flying two or three canoes a year. You know, it's expensive. So most most pilots don't have these special racks that are required by uh, by by law in order to fly external loads. So they're not going to allow you to put a canoe on the airplane. This is true for the entire state of Alaska, and it's true for a lot of places in Canada, and that list is growing more and more and more. So what happens is is that either you take a folding canoe or you don't go, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and the other thing is, is when you, and I, I, you know, guys like, you know, are obviously aware of this because you, you've done this so many times. The minute you put that folding canoe on those pontoons, you, two things happen. One, you got an increased uh, fuel charge, or either that or they, they'll charge you a fee, usually around 100, 125 bucks or something for tying the kind of tie-on fee. So if you have 125 each way going in and going out, there's 250 bucks out of your pocket every time you put a hard boat on the airplane. So yeah. if you you know if you do if you do four or five trips in Canada over your lifetime, you spend a thousand dollars in tie-on fees. So you know it, the way I know here, at least here in the U.S. now, it's gotten to the point that. Uh, if you're going to Canada, going to do a trip in Canada, just get a folding canoe because it eliminates a lot of hassle. You put the canoe, you put the boat right in the airplane. You don't have to worry about uh, tying the thing on, uh, any kind of fees, and then you just put it together when you arrive. So, you know, I'm pretty well sold on them. That's pretty much where everybody's going here these days that's going to Canada. That's interesting. That's interesting. <laughs> and is there... Um are there multiple manufacturers of those uh, folding boats, or is there one in particular that is preferred by you? No, there's only two. There's um, pack boats, uh, and they're made in New Hampshire, and um, then and there's Alley in Norway. Uh, the two boats are similar, but they're different. Uh, the way the pack boat company began life, um, Alf Elstead, who's owns the company. He worked for Alley. He's Norwegian. He worked for Alley. He's an engineer for many years, and he, he wanted to do some improvements. Uh, they didn't like the idea of the improvements, so he said, well, guess what? I'll start my own company, and he did. And if you see the two boats side by side put together, 
you'll say, yeah, I'm going to get the pack boat. Because the pack boat, is, it's just a more highly evolved boat. You kind of have to put, use a hammer to put together an alley. You don't need a hammer to put together a pack boat. Right. It's, right. Just, uh, um, it's, it's, it's just a little bit different way of looking at things. Now, this said, I'm not going to say any unkind things about alleys because they're good boats. All right? But I would I'd make the comparison that if you buy an if you, I, an alley is like a very nice 57 Chevy, and I think the pack boat is sort of like a new BMW. Okay, <laughs> that I don't know. Maybe it's not that far apart, but you know that, that's sort of my my take on that. By the way, on a similar on a on a sort of a different note. Do you guys use bent shaft paddles over there or not? Um, not um, as much as places like the Boundary Waters, for sure. I mean, there are, you know, there are some people who use them, and I think there is a a growing little clique of people who are using them, but generally not. I mean, there aren't. You don't see the the in the way that you maybe get like the really you know elongated light kevlar boats that you might get in some places in you know the states and canada for the flat water paddling and the bent shaft you, you just don't really see that here that wow. particularly that combination but again i think it's correct me if i'm wrong but that sort of combo really comes from people who are largely paddling flat water all the time or doing you know river races where there isn't a lot of you know um sort of bouncy white water is that right well, um, you know, I sort of felt the way you did before I started using because yeah. Because, just sorry to interrupt, because to me, you know, my, my, the image in my mind of people using that is, you know, with a Kevlar Winona in the boundary waters of the bench shaft or maybe doing one of those Yukon, you know, races where, you know, they want light fast and they're in a again they're in a sleek kevlar boat and they're just trying to cover distance quickly so to me it's that kind of combination and that usage which springs to mind and if i'm giving you well, any answer there isn't yeah. there isn't that type of paddling really so much over here i think that's a, a realistic perception but i'm not sure it's real accurate because okay. if you you see i would say uh I would say probably 90% of Americans that go to Canada in heavy tripping boats are using bench shaft paddles. Now, everybody's got to have two paddles. So the attitude is one, one bent, preferably uh, 12 degree, not 14. There's quite a difference between a 12 and a 4. Preferably 12 degrees uh, and a straight paddle for rapids. But now in my solo canoe, I would probably say I use my, a bench shaft carbon fiber paddle probably 90% of the time. Hmm. Uh, even in rapids up to, even in rapids a low class two, okay? The only time I change is when I know I'm going to get into some stuff that's quite dicey where I really need two things. One, I need maneuvering. Number two, I need a strong back paddle stroke to throw the boat into a back ferry. And for that, you need a straight blade because back paddling with a bench shaft is just awkward. The blade's just incorrect. But I went to a, I resisted bent paddles for quite some time. And then I, I did a river in Ontario called, this was many, many years ago. And first boat I ever built is a solo 
uh, wood strip canoe, and I was using a straight paddle uh, and pretty much using a solo sea stroke to keep it running straight all the time. And, you know, halfway through that trip, my wrist, my hands, I couldn't hold a paddle. I was getting, I don't, wouldn't call it carpal tunnels. I don't know what you call it, but it's all I know is my hand hurt. I could hardly hold a paddle. And so I just started using a shorter straight paddle, which I had, and we just started switching sides about every three or four strokes, something like that. And then when I went to a bent paddle, that problem completely went away because because what the, the bent paddle does, it's more from a shoulders push down thing. Okay, so you're not you're really using your shoulders and you're basically pushing the paddle down. And as it goes down, it sort of comes back. And that saves a lot of wear and tear on your wrists. Mm. So if you're trying to make time uh, on a wilderness trip, you really want a bent paddle for two reasons. One, it's simply more efficient because of the bend. And number two, it's not twisting your it's you're not twisting that wrist which is making it a lot more comfortable for you now i'm not saying one's better than the other but i am suggesting that any place that i would go from severe heavy duty big monster whitewater covered boat stuff to little creaky stuff i'd have two paddles one's a bent and one's a straight and once you get into a bent um it's you know it's really hard to go back to to a straight uh, especially if you bite the bullet and you buy an expensive carbon fiber paddle, which I would encourage you to, because it, people think, oh, well, you're you're getting a, it's just a lot lighter weight. Okay, the paddle only weighs ten or twelve ounces compared to a couple of pounds for a wooden paddle. Well, okay, that's part of it, but it's not all of it. The stiffness, it, I guess, it, as well, is a big part yeah, of well, it. Well, yeah. yeah, the other part of it is balance. Right. The, you, those, pad, those carbon paddles are perfectly balanced with like no blade awareness. You, it's very hard to do that with a wood paddle without going to a very expensive wood paddle or putting a lead slug in the grip or, or whatever. Secondly, what you get is super fine edges, literally almost paper thin. So when that paddle enters the water, it makes no sound at all. And the third thing that you get is you don't have any, you know, some, a lot of wood paddles will have a spline down them on one side or the other. Well, the minute you put a spline on a paddle, that's like making it into an airplane wing, okay? So when you, uh, you, when you put the paddle in the water, uh, the flow around the spine, it takes longer to flow around, uh, the water to flow around that spine than it does the flat side, so the paddle wants to move away from you. Uh, um, you know, beginners probably won't notice that but guys like you would mm -hmm. okay so uh yeah you know since uh, you know some of this equipment is really really expensive and that brings us to another point i think and that is what should you spend your money on you know if you go into a at least here in the states if you go into a big store like i don't know rei or one of these big stores and you ask the people what what do people buy what do they spend their money on you know what? One of the number one things people spend their money on are headlamps. You can spend a hundred bucks for a headlamp. Okay? They buy toys. They yeah. don't need toys. What they need is good stuff. Okay? They'll buy a hundred dollar headlamp and a nineteen dollar uh, knife. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
or they'll buy or they'll buy they'll save some money they'll buy a cheap canoe paddle okay now if somebody were to ask me cliff which would you rather do paddle a really nice canoe with a crap wood paddle or paddle with just a mediocre canoe with any paddle you want you know what i think i'd go with the mediocre canoe and the great paddle that paddles in my hands all day long so you know i would say if you want to spend your money on something Spend it on a paddles, okay? And then and let's go to life jackets. You know, personally, my I still have one. I have an ancient British Harrishock life vest. Now, I bet there's hardly any of your readers or listeners know what those old Harrishocks are like. Mm. But I want you to. But I love this thing. It's a tubular vest. It's filled with foam. It's very light. It's like an accordion. Every time I move my arms in or out, it moves like an accordion. I can't even feel this life vest on me at all. Okay, I've had it for years. It's been patched up, whatever. Yeah, I have newer life vests. But you know what? Most of these new life vests are designed for one of two things. Either one, jumping over 50-foot waterfalls, which I'm sure everybody in Britain does on a daily basis, <laughs> or number or number two, uh, the hook and bullet crowd, hunters and fishermen, somebody just sitting in a uh, powerboat all day long, casting out for fish, knowing full well he's never going to tip over. But the old, st- these old style, like these old Harris shocks, these old original British jackets, and some of the earlier ones were only like uh, 12 pounds of flotation, which was actually enough. But no, then what happened is American manufacturers got involved and they said, we don't want you guys buying those British jackets, so we're going to pass a 15-pound rule. In other words, that life vest has to support 15 pounds of flotation. Okay, more flotation is, I won't say always better, it's usually better, but the problem with more flotation is you get more bulk, all right? Mm -hmm. The fact is, if a trimmered life jacket will support you, You'll have more freedom, and you'll wear it all the time. Now, I know that when I was in the UK, I was, you know, I was impressed. Everybody wears a life vest. You don't see that in the states and Canada. Some people wear them. Some people don't. Uh, we keep pushing wear your life vest, but it's not automatic here. You know, you know, like it, like it is over there. Yeah, it, it is, and and people also sort of, you know, if it's hot or you know, they're it's it's a little bit like the argument I think with seatbelts, perhaps, where people think, well, am I likely to need it today, and whether they put it on or not, and I think it's less likely that you're going to need it in some circumstances than others. But trying to prejudge every situation is is not always easy, is it? So I think the standard here is just to wear it. And it's also normally helps you stay warm because <laughs> it's not always super hot in the UK, even in the summer. So, you know, there are occasions, certainly when I've been paddling in Canada, um, when, you know, when I've been with other people, not when I've been on my own, I hasten to add, where we've sort of said it's super hot today and we're on a flat, you know, it's like a mirror calm bit of water it's okay if we don't paddle with our PFDs on because we're just sweating underneath these things. But generally, yeah, everyone wears them here all the time. Yeah. 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 You know, so, you know, the only thing I would do is I would urge people that when you buy gear, don't, don't spend your money on, on, on cutesy things or things that are just like fun, neat little things. Save your money and buy the big important things that you need. Get the canoe you want, the paddle you want, the life jackets you want, uh, 
and the, and the other thing is you don't need you don't need to spend a fortune on clothing either. It's interesting if you talk to people who spend a lot of time in the wilderness, and that's you, Paul. I would bet that everything you have is not state of the art, because what what happens is you find something that works well for you. And you wear it until you just basically wear it out and it doesn't work anymore. And you see no reason to buy the latest and the greatest and spend all this money on it because it may only be a few percent better. Yep. But the difference is, the difference is, is because guys like you have the skills to, shall we say, weather any storm. You don't need that. You don't, you know, even with the extra edge of the very, very finest Guys like you with the skills that you have probably would hardly notice the difference because you're because it, you know how to dress. If the weather's bad or the the water's cold, you're going to have on what you need to have, and uh, and, and the, the the latest and the greatest may offer a one or two percent improvement, which isn't enough to spend a few hundred extra dollars on. So again, we go back to skills. And the more skills you get, the more adept you get at realizing what you really need and what is really important and what isn't. And to, how do you learn that? Well, you join Canoe Club. <laughs> Listen to people. Yeah. Um, and get out and um, get, get your own yeah. experience. You, you've just reminded me of an amusing incident and you know it's always the case with the internet that you know there's a certain attitude in in comments on youtube and facebook and things but a while ago because people are always asking me about what do i wear in the woods and what do i like and what i thought well i'll make a i'll make a, a video and particularly since in the uk it's it's quite cold and damp a lot of the time which personally i think is harder to dress for them than colder but also drier as you get in more extreme cold you know so the cold and damp combination is quite a difficult one but i made a video that was meant well it, it did do it but the intention was to share some principles of different combinations of fabrics that i thought were good um types of garments that were good and combining them so you kind of got the sum of the parts that was kind of greater than each of them on their own so you know wearing an, a, a, a synthetic duvet jacket but putting a, a ventile over the top of it and various other things so you've got the protection from fires that you don't get on pertex and those sorts of things all I got well not all I got but I had several comments after I made this video that they'd looked for the garments that I was wearing <laughs> and they were complaining that with one exception all of them weren't made anymore <laughs> so they so even though I was trying to share principles not recommend specific products or re recommend specific models of products I was trying to say this this type of product this type of garment made of this will do this it works really well in combination with this in this scenario all they wanted was product recommendations and then they just complained that none of those things were available anymore and it's because i've had a lot of those things for years as you say but it just amused me that they kind of missed the point and you just you've just reminded me of that sorry for going off at a tangent you know, going along with it, going along with <laughs> that the, the here's the thing canoeing and camping are a fringe of the fringe sport okay mm -hmm. Uh, if you're a manufacturer and you want to design clothes, you're not going to design them for canoeists. You're going to design them for uh, hunters, fishermen, uh, people going to the all-star game, 
uh, people who just want to look cool and think they're outdoorsy. Those are the people who are buying your products. Now, what we have to do as paddlers and campers, we have to be able to look at those garments and say, hmm, will they work for us? Because there's hardly anybody that designs stuff that's purely for canoeing and kayaking. And by the way, a lot of the stuff that's that's designed or uh, for, for kayaking doesn't work quite as well for canoeing or vice versa. True. Okay, so you have to you kind of have to know the difference. In fact, I just might point out a little thing for anybody who's interested. If they go to my website, cliffcanoe.com, there's a article on there. I think it's under articles it's not under blogs they you can play around a bit and titled you know basically how to choose um outdoor clothing mm -hmm. and there's a whole bunch of tips in there about what doesn't work for paddlers and and what does i'll give you a, just just a simple example there's some little games that we play with this business and that is it's called uh uh, my tent's lighter than your tent. Uh, my, uh, you know, uh, my my parka packs down smaller than yours. Okay, so forth. And and, my, and mine weighs less. And so, in the annual issue of in the U.S., we have a magazine called Backpacker. It's a very popular outdoor magazine, and they do these reviews. So, when the annual issue comes out, they list all these tents and so forth, or all this clothing, how much it weighs, how compact it is, and you know what? That's what people, oh, I want the most compact. I want the lightest. Okay, so the next question you need to ask yourself, how do you get there from here? Okay, you want light and compact. The first thing you do, or one of the first things you do, is you, you get rid of uh, reliable zippers. You get rid of a big reliable zipper and you put a little lingerie zipper in there because it saved a couple, <laughs> two or three ounces. And then the thing doesn't work after a while. It jams up with a little dirt. Or... You uh, or you make your garment with very narrow sleeves so that you look good at the All-Stars game. And although it's big enough to get your body in, the sleeves are so narrow. If you try wearing a fleece uh, top over it, you can't get it in the you can't get it in the jacket or the uh, the neck, the neck, uh, the, the neck doesn't seal up completely high enough. Uh, and there's no way to seal that neck, which is a very critical critical area so and, and it's the same thing with tents when people look at tents how do you how do you cut weight in tents you know what you do you use cheap poles or fewer poles on a whole lot of less stakes so you make a tent that doesn't stand up very well in the wind oh it may go up but it's, it's going to blow down real quick so there's a whole lot of things that go into choosing equipment that most people aren't going to know unless they do some you know really really do some some research yeah and, and that was one of the things that really impressed me when i picked expedition canoeing up and and started to flick through it in the in the store it just impressed me the level of detail and starting to read some of the the the, the parts on uh, selection of equipment uh, as well as other things it was clear to me that this is somebody who really knows their stuff and it comes from experience you're not just talking generic there's some real specific hard-won lessons that were coming through in some of that stuff to me and um so i always i right from the start when i picked that book up of yours i i, I enjoyed it I, I enjoyed the detail in it well thanks paul i i uh, appreciate the comments and uh 
you know, I wish I had known uh, known about you before I did the new version of that, which of course was Canoeing Wild Rivers, because you would have definitely been in there. Hmm. Uh, I just didn't know about you then, and uh, you know, I, I apologize for that. But you certainly should have been in this uh, this new edition of, uh, of of Canoeing Wild Rivers. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Cliff. Thank you. You know, but but yeah, it's a great. Um, it, it, I love canoeing and camping, and uh, the thing I would point out to people is you can, um, uh, you're never too old to do it, and if you are a good paddler when you're young, you'll be a good paddler when you're older. Uh, the only thing that you'll have trouble with is maybe is carrying some stuff, but you know what? At my age, I got to uh, I can't carry the heavy stuff I did before, but you know, my whitewater skills are just as good as they ever were. Maybe better because I think I have better judgment now than I did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, an interesting little story, uh, if we have time for it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've got plenty yeah. of time, Cliff. Yeah. Well, many, many years ago, I built a wood strip solo canoe and I was out playing in some rapids down at a. We have a, a place not too far from us where they set up as a, uh, a, a, a U.S. A whitewater qualifying run, Olympic qualifying run. They put gates up and so forth. It's uh, generally a high class to sometimes into low, uh, sometimes into uh, low three. Not really a technical rapid, but you know you got to know what you're doing. But so you have gates in there. So anyway, I was out there playing in my woodstrip solo canoe. And they had gates set up. They were going to do a, uh, a, a race. And uh, this young woman, who I still remember her name, Kristen Frisch, redheaded girl. She was maybe in her real early 20s. She came over and she says, you know, Cliff, she says, I've been watching you playing around here. She says, you know, you're, you're she says, uh, I need a partner. She says, I want to do a tandem. I want to do a tandem run. And she says, I need a partner. Would you paddle bow for me? I said, yeah, sure, I will. So we paddled by. We went through the gates and afterwards. And then when we get done, she she looked at me. She says, you know, Cliff, she says, you're pretty good. I think you could be competitive. Uh, <laughs> why don't you, uh, you know, enter this race? And I said to her, I said, well, Chris, and I'll be honest with you. You know, these big rapids like this, you know, kind of like freak me out. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm not really, I, I don't think so. So then she looked me right in the eye and she said, Cliff, she says, you have more skill than you have guts, okay? <laughs> and you know what? I cherish that. I cherish that because that is exactly right. And you know what? I That's what's kept me out of trouble. I got more skill than I have guts. Mm-hmm. So uh, so when I look at something and, mm, you know, I could probably do it, but I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so I'll walk around it. Yeah. So if you have the accident, you don't have to treat it. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, I, I think that if you're going to go to Canada or you're going to do these serious wilderness things, uh, you want to surround your surround yourself with people who have more skill than guts. In fact, some of the worst people I've ever paddled with on northern trips have been people who have more guts than they have skill. <laughs> racers or whatever and you know we do this in a race boat all the time or we do this and we do that and they take chances and that's how they get hurt yeah and that i mean one of the things that ray goodwin and i talk about a lot is context because we're 
web paddling in the UK and uh, Ray a lot more than me. That's what he does full time. And he's paddling in certain places regularly in the same pieces of water and he's very skillful. And we'll both take risks on a piece of water that, you know, if we wrap a boat or, or what have you, if we can walk to the road and get the bus home, it doesn't matter as right. much as it does if we do the same move and make the same mistake when we're 100 miles away from anywhere and we've got to call a float right. plane in. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, Paul, there are some people who just don't seem to get that. No, there aren't. And you see it in comments on, you know, I've seen Ray post comments on, fa uh, post videos on Facebook and people make sort of judgmental remarks about, oh, did you really line that? Or did you really portage that I had on one of my videos recently? And I'm like, yes, I damn well did because I was on my own and I was miles away from anywhere else. And if I made a mistake, that stuffed the whole journey up, even if I didn't injure myself. That, you know, that, that's exactly right. And I think I wouldn't, don't know if I would call it a dangerous episode, but it was telling. We never invited the guy on a canoe trip again. We did years ago, we did uh, the Burnside River in um, the Northwest Territories. And it's a tough river. It parallels the hood. And uh, we came to one rapid, and we looked at it. We said, no, no, we're, we're going to portage this. It's, not a, it's an easy portage anyway. And one of the guys, his whole attitude was, we do this in race boats all the time. He was a racer. And I, and I said, this is not smart. Well, don't do this. And uh, he was paddling with a guy, one of our people in our crew. He was a young, he wasn't a kid, he was 19, but he, you know, not, not very good paddler at the time. He says, well, we're going to run it. I said, all right, if you're totally convinced you're going to run it, then do this. I'm going to portage my boat around. Now, you wait till I get in the water again, and as soon as you see me in the water, okay, I'll pull over into an eddy, and then you can run. Then if anything happens, at least you'll have a rescue boat. Yep. So here I am. Three, this is the tundra, you know, so you can see there's no trees. Mm -hmm. So I'm th about three quarters through the portage, and down he comes. Right through the rapid. He, okay, he made it. He made it. Okay? Luckily, he made it. But you know what? If he hadn't, it would have been Katie bar the door because he's on his own. Yeah, from that point yeah. on, because I'm not even in the water yet. Now, it's that kind of disrespect for danger that I don't care how good a paddler the guy is, you don't want somebody like that on a canoe trip. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, absolutely. And as that, that, that context aspect, as I say, is one that I think we, we often see with British paddlers who are only used to paddling in Britain and don't go to those wild places, but clearly it's not um, it's not just those. You know, it's it, again, it's, it comes down to experience, doesn't it? And reining in that um, that desire to have a Yahoo, um, even if you might do closer to home. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you you probably heard this too. Um, people will ask you, uh, Paul, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this canoe trip in Canada. Um, what should I look for in a partner? Okay. <laughs> and they expect you to say something like, well, got to be a good whitewater paddler and, you know, got to be a real a good camper, you know. You know what? The one, what I tell them, got to be a nice person. Yeah. Got to be a nice person. Okay. That's rule number one. 
In fact, it might be rule number two, three, and four, okay? Then after that, you can look at paddling skills. You can teach somebody paddling skills. You can look at camping skills. Yeah, you can teach them that too, okay? In the course of a canoe trip, if somebody's halfway bright and has a halfway decent muscle coordination, by day three, you can teach them pretty much what they need to know to, to get down the river. Okay, if they're paddling bow with you, you can. Okay, but you can't teach somebody to be a nice person. And if you get one person on your trip who is a real pain in the ass, who is making life miserable for you, you know, it doesn't matter what what the day is like. The day is ruined. Every day is ruined because you got this this one person who is not enjoying it or who is hostile. And one person can destroy a whole group. Um, so. That's why it's really important to spend some time with somebody who's going to go on a long trip with you. Spend some time outdoors with them a little bit. Don't look at their, oh, they're a good paddler, whatever. Uh, that is a lot of times some of your best friends in the business world are terrible. If you get them out in the woods, they can't deal with it. They can't deal with the wild places. They can't, and they go bonkers. Yeah. You know, I've had this. I call it the one in, I call it, the, actually for me, over the years, it's come out, the one in 15 rule. Uh, every 15 people I, I have guided on canoe trips, I've had one ringer, mm. you know. And once you get that, it's it, it just spoils the whole trip. It does. It sets a funny mood in the whole group the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I've had it. Um, mm. I've had it on courses as well when I'm teaching skills in the woods and you get one person who's whether they know it or not, are just in some way disruptive or negative or, yeah, disrespectful or awkward or they just don't have any consideration for the other people in the group um, in one way or another, it, it causes up a real funny atmosphere in a group of, you know, 10 or 12 people for sure, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I need to put in a, uh, I need to put in a plug too for women who do these trips because my experience with, the majority of women, I had one woman who was one of the worst people I've ever had on a canoe trip, but the majority of women that I've had have been not only excellent. Let me give you an example. I, I had, and it's not about size. This is what I really want to, to stress to people. Uh, it's not about how big you are or how powerful you are that's going to determine your success on one of these trips. It's about heart. I remember sitting out on Hyde Lake and um, in none of it, Canada. What were at river were we on? I'm even trying to re trying to remember now. Oh, it was the uh, Thayan, which flows into um, Hudson Bay. And we were stuck there for three days with, it wasn't a blizzard, but it might as well have been. It was just rain and ice cold. And I, we were so tired. I was so tired. I couldn't get up and make dinner. And here's this young woman, about 30 years old, going around from tent to tent. To, she'd made dinner for everybody and was delivering it to everybody in their tent. This was probably about 8 o'clock at night or, or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have I, – I, I couldn't get up and do this. So it's about heart. Um, I, I mean, a, a, another example, I had two diabetics – on my trip, okay? Uh, one was a, um, 
um, one had to have his uh, his food precisely uh, 12 o'clock and I think 5 o'clock every day, okay? The other one had an insulin pump, all right? And here we'd be right in the middle of a rapid or something like this, and this guy is yelling out, I got to stop, I got to eat, I got to stop, I got to eat. The other guy had it figured out. So you, so, you know, it's okay to take people like that on your trip, but they have to have it figured out so that what they do doesn't impact the rest, the rest of the group or they can't go. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you know, and on a similar note, I know this is going to sound cruel. <laughs> it's an observation. Uh, every now and then you get somebody on one of your trips who is vegan. Okay, so what are you going to do? So what you really want to say is, um, oh, yes, uh, yeah, don't worry, we'll work around it. The fact is on a wilderness trip, it's very difficult to do that because what you have, you've got maybe you have one stove or two stoves, one set of pots, your food is all geared to be cooked in a certain way, okay, you have to you know, put it in the cold water or something, you've tied up a stove, and then right in the middle of this, this person who is vegan comes along and wants to cook up their garbanzo beans or whatever it is and and but the stove is tied up your pots are tied up so and, and then if you turn around and then when you're done with that you will then let them use your stove okay now they're using gas and you may have you may be in a situation where especially especially if you're above the arctic circle and, and you know there's barely even much driftwood you got to cook on a stove and you have your your fuel has been planned out for so much every day and you you haven't planned for that and you can run out of fuel by accommodating this other person so as cruel as it sounds you know what i've come up with i said yes you're more than welcome to join us on the trip but you must bring your own food and your own stove and your own pot okay so if you do that then they're out of your hair but to try to accommodate somebody sometimes you get into these situations i mean you've been there you know where the conditions are rugged and, and you're you're working right at the limit and you just can't have any more beyond the limit so yeah yeah it's uh it's a difficult one sometimes yeah as you say you want to be inclusive um and you want people to have these experiences but it, it's difficult when their idiosyncrasies whatever they are whether it's dietary or character or anything else start impacting on the well-being of the rest of the group or the ability of the rest of the group to function properly it, it, it becomes an issue yeah. yeah right 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 did you did we ever talk about uh, going solo the wonder the joys of going by yourself have not, you ever not yet not yet we haven't talked about that um, well yeah Maybe we should just take a minute and talk about that mm. because it seems to be a perception by people that this is a dangerous thing. And um, I don't think it is. Uh, uh, first of all, I think, as, as you well know, because you do it, it's actually kind of wonderful because you do exactly what you want. You get up what you want, when you want, you stop when you want, you get hot, you change clothes or cold, you put on clothes, you don't have to keep up with it. And the only thing you have to please is yourself. And there's a notion or a thought that it's more dangerous because you're by yourself. Well, I would say it's only more dangerous uh, by yourself if you 
I guess the only thing that ever concerned me was I, I'm much more careful when I walk so that I don't trip and fall. I don't want to break an ankle. Yeah. Uh, that's really the major thing. As far as one of the things I've noticed when I've gone alone is I pretty much do the same things alone that I do with if I'm with other people. In other words, if the rapid is canoeable, I know it's canoeable and I'll do it. Uh, if it's marginally so, hey, I'm going to walk around it or, 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 or something else. So I found that I really don't take any more, any more or any less chances alone than I do with a group. Uh, you said that, uh, well, you were very, very careful because you went by yourself on the Barrens River. And I would submit to you, if you had another canoe with you, I'll bet you would have done pretty much everything the same way. Yeah, 95%. There were, there were a couple of rapids where I thought, there's probably a line there. I can see one. If there was a boat in the eddy below, because it's a pool drop river, I it's a warm day. If there was a couple of boats, I'd run it. But I just can't be bothered with the hassle <laughs> of dealing with it on my own. If it goes, you know, if I have to swim everything to the side or whatever, that was largely the, those marginal decisions where I I may have run something if we were a couple of tandem boats or a couple of solo boats, but didn't because I was on my own. Yeah. See, and the the other thing though that would put that puts you in a more difficult situation as we go back to this thing you had a tandem canoe loaded for a long trip you were paddling it solo and no matter how good you are you got a big slug basically a big sluggish boat here now yeah it's okay. a it's a bathtub of a boat i mean it's it's got a bit more rocker than some 16 right. boats that one in that particular trip and it was a bit more it was a bit more turnable into eddies and things for a big boat than other, some other big boats have paddled but still the, there's a lot of room in there and it was also quite windy on some of those days and they start moving around and yeah it's it just makes life a bit more difficult well, yeah. but the other thing is if you had had if if, if if the boat was rigged out as a tandem boat if you'd had a good bow paddler okay and, I mean, any way you cut it, two people in a tandem canoe who know what they're doing can, uh, and can work well as a team are going to do better in a rapid than somebody paddling a big boat like that by themselves. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, uh, you know, that's a factor. Yeah. Well, straight after that trip um, on the Barrens, I hooked up with, with Ray Goodwin, who you know, and we took a group on the Miss and Ibe, and it was relatively low. It was, it was scrapey in place. It was actually very low in places, but we were in 17-foot um, Eskif prospectors, so they were a foot longer than that boat that I was paddling on the, on the Barrens and the same uh, manufacturer. But because I had a bow paddler, we were chucking that big boat full of more gear into eddies and moving it around in a way that would have been difficult for me on my own in the 16. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. So where are you going? Where, where, what's your next Canadian river? Um, the Porcupine. I've river. done it. Yeah. In Saskatchewan, yeah. right? Yeah. We're doing I've that. Done... There's a group of us doing it in the summer. Yeah. Tell, tell us about oh. it. Tell us what we need to know, if you can remember. There's a long, mean portage on River Right on that on the Porcupine. Uh huh. But have you done other Saskatchewan rivers? No, this is the first one. Oh, <laughs> you know what? I think Saskatchewan 
Saskatchewan is maybe my favorite canoe country. Hmm. I'll tell you why. Most people don't understand about Saskatchewan, especially Americans. You know, it's all they, you know, they think, oh, yeah, you know, land, uh, wheat, and whatever you're growing, but they can't picture Saskatchewan as being this wilderness canoeing area. But northern Saskatchewan is wonderful, I think, for the following reasons. Uh, first of all, the, the climate is pretty stable. Uh, the summer months, you don't get much rain. It, 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 if it rains, it, yeah, you can get rain, but it's not a big gully wumper kind of a thing. It's you know, it might be more. It can be it can be an icy cold rain, but you just don't get a lot of water out of the system usually. So uh, generally, the days are pretty nice. Secondly, if you look up the amount of rainfall they get in that part of Saskatchewan, I can't remember what it is, but it's not a lot. So you don't you don't have much in the way of bugs at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you can get some, but uh, compared to other parts of Canada, basically, I would say no bugs, which is a plus. Absolutely. Thirdly, you've got these incredible, huge eskers for camping that you can sometimes some of these eskers, you can put 100 tents on. them. I mean, there's just the, the views, these big, huge, sandy eskers. Phenomenal. Thirdly, the fishing's terrific. And fourthly, um, the water is not so cold that if you capsize in a rapid, you're going to die. Mm. So, and fifthly, hardly anyone does Saskatchewan rivers, uh, especially the, the, the more, more obscure ones, uh, you know, like the porcupine and uh, uh, the Cree and... Um, there's a, a bunch of them in that area. Once you, once you start doing Saskatchewan rivers, you're going to pretty much be hooked. Uh, <laughs> so are you going to start on the porcupine? I'm trying to remember now. I think the porcupine goes into the Fond du Lac. Um, okay. We're starting right up on the, the name of the lake actually escapes me. I'm, I'm still a bit jet lagged, Cliff. I've just come back from Australia, so my brain just is not quite as good with recollection um but there's a there's a lake that's right on the border between saskatchewan and the northern ter- the northwest territories but anyway we're starting we're starting on the 60th parallel and then paddling down to fond du lac um yeah so so where how far where are you getting out in uh, well, well the, not the only the, why, go on oh, say no i say the only reason poor if you go to the indian village you got a portage quite a bit of portaging through. I can't remember the name, but there's a bunch of falls and rapids right in there. It, it, you can get out. If you don't want to go that, you can, you can right where the Fond du Lac comes out at Black Lake, right at that point, right there, they can bring, they can land a plane right there. Okay. And you can get out right there. Otherwise, you have to paddle across Black Lake. Black Lake, well, first of all, Black Lake is very shallow. I mean, it's like, it's really, really shallow. And there's no islands in it, so it's like you watch the weather and then you make this man and then you make a run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, across. a lot of you're going to get chop coming up on that very easily. Yeah, so that's a little black lake can be dicey, and then when you get across, then you got to go down through this uh, river like I I can't remember now, but it's, it's it's a bunch of portaging. I mean, yeah, it's pretty in there. I mean, yeah, you can do it if you want to do it. The question is, you know, why? You know, I, the question is, do you want to do it? Uh, because it's all you're, you're you're really not in a sense you're not 
gaining anything, I don't think, uh, because you're still getting a plane probably coming from LaRange or someplace to pick you up. I don't think the plane is going to become uh, – so you, I don't think you're going to save any money on the airplane. Mm-hmm. I think all you're going to really do is uh, you'll have to watch Black Lake and make sure that it's okay for crossing, uh, and then you're going to do a bunch of portages. Uh, you will see some pretty country, but you're going to see a lot of pretty country along the way. But it's your call, you know. It's your mm-hmm. call. Okay, that's that's good advice. That's good mm-hmm. advice. Yeah, it's good to good to get inside yeah. knowledge from people who've who've been for sure. Uh-huh. Um, it was Selwyn Lake is where we're starting, by the way. If mm-hmm. that rings any bells. Yeah, you you'll love Saskatchewan. I think once you do one Saskatchewan River. Uh, you're going to be coming back for more. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So, what what have you got planned, Cliff? Have you got trips well, coming up? You know what? I'm pretty much done with Canada now at my age. It's it's not that I don't love the, but you know, I've seen my thousands of caribou and muskox and polar bears and seals. I love all that stuff. But there's kind of gray at the end of the tunnel now, and I want to do some things I haven't done. Mm. So, mm. And that's what I've been doing now. What I've been doing is I always snub my nose at U.S. rivers. Oh, come on, guys. You know, But, you know, we do really have some interesting rivers here. Okay, like I told you about my favorite, the Rio Grande. Mm. Yeah. Uh, which I've done four times, going to do it a fifth time now. We're going to do 200, and I think we're going to, the one we're going to, we're going to go in uh, February of, of next year. We're going to do um, 260 miles on it, okay? Mm-hmm. That's my favorite. But there's some of the western rivers that are like the San Juan and the Green. Yeah, they do have rafters on them. Uh, but it's, it's some it's just interesting and different like on the green river you actually go by the place where butch cassidy and the sundance kid had their cabin where right. they hit and you can actually hike over and see the remains of that cabin uh you see uh, you camp at night on these cliff faces with these anasazi runes that go back thousands of years uh, it is different because it's not as remote as it is in Canada, but it's still great canoeing and superb camping. Um, so I've been doing that, and then I've been doing uh, some tropical stuff, uh, like we we did a canoe trip in Costa Rica. Uh, we canoed across the Everglades. That was a 10-day trip. Just kind of a different flavor, if you will. And the nice thing about that is we could do those trips in the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, in you know, if you're going to Canada, it's got to be summer. So, true. you know. But, yeah, I would encourage you, though, uh, as much of a wild man as you are, do the Rio Grande before you die. And, oh, yeah, I want to suggest to my UK friends there's a movie out called The River and the Wall. The River and the Wall. It's a dot. See it. Okay. Now, you have to 
get it off some website. I don't know where. It's probably rented here. I think it rents here for $3.99. But it's a documentary about a team of uh, five people who went down the Rio Grande from the very top all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. They talked to Mexican ranchers along the way. They talked to U.S. people on the U.S. side. Uh, they went partly by hiking, bicycle, horses, and then canoes in, in the lower part. They were very unskilled. In fact, when you watch the movie, you're going to roll your eyes. Or they survived. They did so many stupid things, I thought. But the message was amazing. And I mean, it's, you know, I'm sure that you guys have all heard what's going on with this wall thing. Uh -huh. and we are so ticked off about this wall thing. And uh, so, but it, it gets at all of that. And then near the end, as they're approaching the Gulf of Mexico, one of the guys in the, who's paddling the canoes, he looked, there's, a, there's the wall right there. He says, you know, he says, I think I can climb that thing. <laughs> so his buddies say, all right, go ahead if you can. Five minutes later, he's on top of the wall and he's waving. <laughs> Stupid. This, this is, but it's a, it's really kind of a must-see film, and I think UK paddlers will really enjoy it, and it will give them also a flavor of what this magnificent river is like. Because I got to tell you, the Rio Grande I think is as amazing and spectacular and as challenging as uh, many of the top Canadian rivers that I paddle. And in a sense, it's, it's as remote as many. Once you start down that baby, you might run into a few people at the upper end, but once you get down in the canyons and things, you're not going to see anybody. And if you wipe out, you're not going to get out because it's a 100-mile, it could be 60 to 100-mile walk through desert where everything cuts and stings. Mm. So, but, yeah. Anyway. That's my take. No, that's interesting. That's interesting. I'll certainly check that movie out. I'm sure I can find it yeah. somewhere on the on the interwebs, as you say, on a on a pay download site or something somewhere. I'm sure it's sure yeah, it's around somewhere. I mean, it's a long movie, but I think you'll really enjoy no, it. It sounds good. It sounds good. It sounds like the type of thing I like to watch. So thank you for that. One of the things that strikes me about your experiences, your your career, your canoeing career, Cliff, is the variety, or at least the the extent which in a sense equates to the same thing the, the number of different rivers that you've paddled the types of rivers that you've paddled have you did you always going back to your bio a little bit you said you kind of when you left the army you kind of really fully went into it in a heavy duty basis was was it right from the offset that you were just no actually what happened it was funny uh when i was in high school mm -hmm. i was on the ROTC rifle team, small mm -hmm. boy rifle team. Then when I got in college, and I was on the college rifle team. And then when I got in the Army, uh, I got into, um, I was on the, uh, the U.S. national match big boar rifle team and national match long range team. Those days, that was 1,000 yard, and I really was into shooting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when I got out of, um, uh, when I got out of the Army, went back home, I was still into shooting, and there was a buddy of mine who was really into shooting. And one day he says to me, he says, you know, Cliff, he says, I bought a canoe. I said, geez, I used to like canoeing. And he says, well, you want to go on a canoe trip with me? I said, yeah, sure. So we went down the river, and it was like, bingo. I totally forgotten all this, and then I was just totally hooked on it. And then I went home immediately, and I told my wife, I got to buy a canoe. 
And but we couldn't afford one. I was just a teacher, poor teacher, couldn't make much money. But I was also a smoker. And so right. I said to Sharon, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll quit smoking and I will save, I think it was like a dollar and a half a week or something like that in those days. I'll quit smoking and I'll save money for a year and then I should be able to buy a canoe. She said, okay, you got a deal. So that's what I did. I actually quit smoking, put money away. Maybe it was more than a dollar. Maybe it was two and a half bucks. It was a pack of two and two fifty a week or something like that. I'm, but I had enough money at the end of the year, and I bought a canoe, and then I never looked back. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's kind of how it started for me. The canoe, as much, I love paddling the canoe, just paddling. But for me, the draw is the wilderness, the wildness. Uh, I, I can't separate the two. That's why, with due respect, I can't get into this SUP thing, this stand-up paddling thing. Um, it's, I, you know, I can see the challenge of it. I know I've seen some guys, they run rapids with these things. They're incredible athletes. It's wonderful. But it, to me, the canoe has become a vehicle for getting me into wild places. And so that's still where I am today. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. that that's something that completely resonates with me, Cliff. I mean, that was what got me into canoeing in the first place. It was my desire to be able to access places and travel through areas that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do and get to those wild places. And it, it just fits together with that, you know, the, you know, and to me, it's not just about the canoeing. It's also about the camping and the campcraft and just that totality of skill set and being able to move through a through a landscape and that that's just a brilliant thing about it for me yeah. no me too and you know um you know before we break up here i would say to to your listeners you can contact me through my website cliffcanoe.com just click on contact and you can email me and i, gen- I generally get back within a couple days you know, to people so you know if you have any questions about you know canoeing or camping or equipment or whatever hey i'd love to hear from you guys uh you know across the pond and uh well the, so list, the listener base of this podcast is quite wide cliff i mean there are plenty of people in the uk but there's people in europe there's people in the states people in canada we've got listeners in australia so yeah you hopefully you hear from all of those places because you know we've got a, a very good listener base of committed outdoors people who are interested in all these things so yeah that's a fantastic resource for, for people potentially contacting you if they want to and gaining you know some insight from your experience so thank you cliff that's so i suppose i should also add there's a whole bunch of blogs on my website and so if people go on the website and they they can kick up any one of those blogs in fact uh, the latest one which is that's on there it's called um, been there done that and it's <laughs> actually the story we just completed a trip down the rio grande earlier this year but this was a way different trip it was very unusual it was also on the dangerous side but so people want to, you know, try learn a little bit more about that river, some other things. Check out some of the blogs. I think you'll find them interesting. Yeah, there's some good stuff on there. I've read quite a few of your articles, but you're reasonably uh, prolific. And yeah, I, I need to go back and, and revisit some of what you've written recently. I'm just I'm just going through it now. And you've updated your I'm just looking at your website. You've updated it a bit. It's uh, looking a bit more um, slick. 
I without being without being rude about the old one it's <laughs> it's uh it's looking very modern now oh actually you know actually my daughter did that website for me on on wix w-i-x wix.com uh and that anybody can put up a website uh, on Wix, you don't have to know the HTML. You just mm -hmm. do what they say. You know, those life say here will say, "Click here. This is a paragraph." Okay, so you click there, and then you can write. So uh, yeah, so that's basically the Wix website is. It's very very inexpensive, but that's. But thank you. I appreciate the kind words about it. Oh, it looks you. good. It looks good, and this, and and more importantly, the content's good. <laughs> and and definitely worth reading so if people are not familiar with your site they should certainly check it out um there's a there's a few things on your site that we haven't touched on and I, in particular one that i know you've had interesting conversations with um particularly some of the canadians um with respect to what you do about bears in and around your camp oh hi this whole bear th it's really funny about this bear thing <laughs> Um, okay, if I tell people I'm going to Canada, they'll say, God, I'd never go there. The bears will eat you alive. Yeah. If I yeah. tell them I'm going to canoe the Rio Grande, oh, my God, I'd never go there. The, the Mexican druggie will get you. <laughs> and when we canoed across the Everglades, it was the snakes. The pythons are going to get you. You know what? I would say to those people, one, stay home. You don't belong in the wilderness, okay? You can't handle it. All right? And as far as the bear thing is concerned, you know, there is a, by the way, there is a nice blog about bears on there that you might want to read. But the Canoeing Wild Rivers, my book, has a dissertation on it, a whole chapter. Yeah. But it, it's like it, old ideas die hard. It's like you ask people what they are most afraid of when they go to the wilderness, and the first thing they're going to tell you is bears. Mm -hmm. When that is so far down the line, I mean, even on the canoe trips I've done to Hudson Bay, I've done, I don't know, six, seven canoe trips to Hudson Bay. We've had a couple of kind of dicey polar bear encounters. So that's probably the one place where you really want to be armed. Is when you're among polar bears, because those babies will those babies can do five miles an hour in the water, and they can probably swim 100, 200 miles without a break. All right, yeah. and there are trees to climb, no way to get away. So that's probably the one place where you know we can talk about DNI. But otherwise, a you know, and I mean, not that I've not that I've been in polar bear country, but I I know other people who have as well. But I mean, the other thing that people say about polar bears is that they will actively hunt you. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, here's the other thing is, statistically, 95% of people who've been injured or killed by a polar bear never heard or saw the bear coming. They're quiet. Yeah. Okay? But I don't want to scare people with the bear thing because, you know what, that's pretty far down the line. I've had a lot of bear encounters over the years. Polar bears, grizzlies, lots of black bears. And I know this sounds hokey, but it's true. One, these animals are incredibly intelligent. In fact, there's, people just don't understand how smart they are. They have the actual ability to teach their children. Now, if you don't believe that, what you do is you go online and you look up a little bear called Yellow Yellow. Now, yellow yellow 
was a black bear, a little female black bear in the Adirondacks of New York. And they developed a, a bear-proof container called the uh, Bear Vault 500. Bear Vault 500. It's a big a plastic container. It's used in national parks here and stuff. And uh, I'm sure they probably have them for sale in the UK. Not that you have any bears there that you have to worry about. But um, in order to open this thing, it's like a medicine bottle. You have a little tab that you have to use your fingernails to push in. They had they they tested out that product on the uh, the grizzly bears in the Folsom Zoo in New York. Bears couldn't open it. Release it into the Adirondacks. It took within two weeks. Yellow Yellow figured out how to open it. <laughs> then she told all of her friends. Pretty soon, every bear in the Adirondacks could open that thing. So they sent it back to the company, and they told the company, "We need a uh, we need you to redo this thing." They did. What they basically did was they added a second little sort of pill-type tab on it. It took her only a few days to figure that one out. Now, when I do these bear presentations, I do a lot of presentations on bears. I cover the instructions in the lid. I put an autographed copy of one of my books in this thing, and I pass it around. <laughs> Whoever can figure out how to open it gets the book. Now, here's what's interesting. With adults, it generally goes to about a dozen adults before number 13 gets it. With teenagers, it's number two or three. Mm. Okay? So there maybe there is something to be said for them playing on iPads or iPhones all, all day long. I don't know. But the point is, is that's how smart and de dexterous these animals are. And I would, and, and when it comes to trying to put your food in a bear-proof container, here's what I tell people. I say, tape your thumb down on your hand, on both hands. Pretend you have jaws that open up a, uh, 10 inches or 12 inches. Pretend you have a, a teeth that or stick out another 8 or 10 inches in front of your nose. And pretend that you have you can you, you you can use your hands, you can use your arms, you can use your mouth to open this container. But you can't use your opposing thumb. That's the key. If you can do that, the bear can too. And it's as simple as that. So they're very adept at getting into stuff. But so you know that's the first thing. And the other big thing, which is the the you know, the monstrous disconnect that people have is in every national park you go to in the United States and provincial park in Canada, they tell you to put your food in a tree, to haul it up on a line into a tree. Well, you know what? Bears climb trees, and they climb very, very well indeed. In fact, black bears climb better than you do. Yep. If you've ever been in, or people who never been in the woods, if you've been in the woods and you ever watch a mom uh, mama black bear and a, a cub or two, the first, at the first sign of danger, what does she do? She sends the cubs up the tree. And if it looks really dangerous, she might climb up herself too. It's a little harder for her, but she can do it. Okay. And if you ever watch them try to get packs, treed packs out of the trees in places like the boundary waters, mama knows she's not going to climb up that tree. She sends the cubs up. Cubs come up and they'll launch themselves out at this thing and grab it on the way down. In fact, in the Western parks, the rangers have a name for this, the, those, those tree packs, they call them bear pinatas, <laughs> you know. So the, the question is, why do federal authorities give you this 
advice to put your food in a tree if bears climb trees? And the answer is really, really simple. They don't care if a bear gets your food. They don't care if a bear tears up your car, but they do care if a bear gets you. So how do you fix the problem? People here, food there. Okay. Now you can't just tell people to remove the food from camp because you got to give them a formula because most people, I would say most, a lot of people aren't very smart. So what you do is you give them a formula. Okay, the limb has to be so high, the, the uh, food has to be so far from the limb and so forth. The point is in Canada, you don't find trees like this. Try putting a 50 pound food pack on a branch of a coniferous tree and see what happens. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When you're in a forest full of pine and and balsam fir, it's pretty difficult to find those trees. Yeah. <laughs> well, there might be one tree in a whole campsite that's strong enough to support the pack. Well, guess what? Everybody uses it, and every bear knows where it is. So, uh, in fact, some years ago, this was at a. Um, there's a big, huge event here in in the United States. It's called Canoe Copy. It's in Madison, Wisconsin. Draws about. 10, 15,000 people or more. And I'm, I had about 500 people in the audience. And um, I said, how many of you guys have ever uh, had your food taken by a bear? And there was probably about 30 hands went up out of the 500. And so I said, okay, now how many of you had your food in a tree? 95%. Huh. 95% had their food in a tree. Okay, so, you know, if people read and I, you know, we don't have time in something like this to go into a huge dissertation on bears and why I recommend not treeing your food. But, you know, if they read this section and read that section in my book, they'll see the rationale. But as all I'm going to say to you is all I'm going to say to listeners is bears climb trees. They climb very, very well. And the only thing you're going to succeed by putting your food in a tree is two things. One, the food will be away from you, so he won't get you when he gets your food. Number two, the food will be higher in the air, so the aroma will carry further and it will draw bears in from a greater distance. You know, with that, I kind of rest my case. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is, as well, I always scratch my head with this putting food up trees and when i first did trips in canada particularly i mean the first trip i did in canada that was a solo trip it was only a couple of nights out and i did put my food up a tree partly because i didn't have it in a, a barrel well i only had yeah well I, I basically i didn't have a barrel that i could put up a tree i just had a dry bag so i was like yeah I, you know just for mice and chipmunks and things as well i want it off the ground um yeah. but um I was also like, well, I'm on my own, da da da. But on that Barron's trip, I didn't, you know, on, on and subsequently, I, I, you know, to to that first trip I did on my own, I I haven't done. And and one of the things as well is that when I've done trips with groups, which is which is mostly what I've done in, in Canada, you know, there's eight of you. There's, you know, if you've taken some fresh stuff at the beginning, you know, you might have three or four barrels with food in for you know several weeks and you know you've got a few throw lines how the hell are you going to find <laughs> you know a tree or several trees that are strong enough to take you know i don't know 200 pounds of food um yes. with the kit that you've got and get it up there i mean it's just and, and every single campsite you're in a different situation every night it's just not practical well you know do you want me to i have a very nice photo here of a bear who ate right through a barrel. 
Those plastic barrels are not bearproof. I can send you the photo if you want. Yeah, I'd be interested to see I'll, that. Yeah. I'll send you the photo. But a black bear will get through one of those plastic barrels so fast, it'll make your head spin. Mm -hmm. Either mm -hmm. A, first they'll probably start gnawing at it and whatever, trying to figure that out. Then they'll pounce on it. You get 300 pounds a bear pouncing on one of those, and if there's much air in that thing, they, they can pop that thing just like a cork. Or they'll just bite right through it. They can eat right through it. In Alaska, if you do the national parks in Alaska, they require, they require you to take uh, these. These are steel barrels. They do not float. Uh, they do not have any way to grab them, okay? They'll roll real good. Mm -hmm. If they mm -hmm. go, uh, if, they, if you capsize and they go out of a canoe, they're going to sink, so you got to build a waterproofing system inside. And they have this very simple latch that you push down and then move sideways. One night in camp on the Noatak River in Alaska, I had a, we all had a few drinks, and I said, you know what? I think I can open this with my nose. <laughs> and so I got down there. I had it pushed down, but I couldn't get enough power to move it to the left to unhook it without hurting my nose. But I could take my fist. I could open it with my fist. I could push down with my fist and swing it to the left. Okay? Now, the, the good news is grizzlies aren't as smart as black bears. They aren't. So maybe a grizzly couldn't figure it out. I don't know. But I can tell your listeners that, one, putting your food in a plastic barrel means nothing. A bear wants to get in there, they'll go right through it. What I tell people is really simple logic. I say if a bear can't see your food or smell your food, he won't get your food. Now, what do I mean by Let's talk smell first. There's a notion that these bears are, are gods and that they can smell, you know, 10 miles away. They can smell your freeze-dried chicken tetrazzini. Uh, no, no. What they do smell, if your food is, say, dehydrated, freeze-dried, packed in mylar, they're not getting that odor very far. They're probably not getting odor at all. What they are getting is you. They can smell us supposedly we stink. So when a bear who's a half a mile away comes into your camp, he's probably, unless you've been careless with your food, he's probably just smelled you. He may have, if he's had experience with humans before, then he knows that there's food in camp. Once he gets in there, he'll, he'll, he'll look around for it. So that's usually the draw that's going to, that's going to bring him in. Now, some people will say, well, what about uh, odor-proof bags. Yeah, there are some odor-proof bags. They are pretty odor-proof. The problem is the minute you touch touch them with your hands, you've got an odor on them, okay? So if you want to pack your food in those odor-proof bags with uh, latex gloves, I guess, okay, go ahead and be my guest, whatever. But, you know, how, so you're, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to, the way I tell people, the smart way to do is if he can't smell your food or see your food, he won't get it. What about C? Okay, if he's been at a dump and he's learned that food comes in cans, anytime he sees a can, he's going to take it apart. Yeah. I've seen him take apart cans that 
didn't contain food, cans that contained other things. I've seen a I've seen bite marks into cans that at one time contained gasoline or kerosene. They'll buy, once they learn that a certain object contains food, they'll bite into it. Now, if they get enough negative experiences, then they just simply won't bite into that anymore. Okay. So what I tell people is, uh, take your food out of camp, stick it under a tree. That's it. End of story. I've never had a problem. They'll come into camp, especially in these campsites, like in the boundary waters of the U.S. and Quetico Provincial Park of Canada, uh, where there's a lot of people using these campsites. The bears know where all these campsites are. They know people have food. So they'll come into that campsite and they'll root around looking for it. But if they can't smell it and they can't see it because it's hidden under a bush somewhere, fine. Yeah. So, yeah. but when I say take your food out of camp, the problem is we have a lot of people who are not real smart. One time at one of my bear presentations, a guy, this is true, this actually happened. A guy raised his hand and he said, Cliff, he said, you said take the food out of camp, okay, and hide it under a tree. Quote, where does camp end? <laughs> Where does camp end? Uh, yeah, yeah, you take a yardstick. Come on, you okay. So, I mean, you, how do we deal with this kind of stupidity? How the federal authorities deal with it is to say, put it in a tree, the limb has to be so high, so far out, blah, blah, blah. Okay? So, you know, uh, putting your food in a tree is not going to solve a problem for you. Mm. Put it in a plastic barrel is not going to solve a problem for you. The only thing that's going to solve your problem is to put it where you can't find it. And, you know, sometimes things get ridiculous, too. Uh, you go to the Arctic above the tree line, and the advice is locate your kitchen 100 yards from camp, okay? <laughs> 100 yards uh, upwind uh, from your camp. 100 yards. You know how far 100 yards is? You're going to walk back and forth, okay? Are you going to walk? I mean, are you really going to walk? Uh, I mean, down one from your camp. Uh, are you really going to walk 100 yards? No, nobody's going to do that. So why give people advice like that? Because it gets you off the hook. There's too much advice that's being given out to people that's politically correct that doesn't work. Now, I hate to go into a rant here, but I'm going to give you a good example. Go for it. Yeah. If you... What do they tell you to do in a you're on that you're in a canoe and a lightning storm? What do you do? Get to shore quickly. Uh, hide under uh, a low a low lying cliff or something like that. Okay, let's look at the realities of that. If we got a lightning storm like this and you're out on the water, you're probably running in three foot waves. You can't even get close to the shoreline without crashing and burning. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> all right. And then if you do. If you think about it, lightning strikes generally strikes the tallest trees in the area, the tallest object in the area. Well, think about it. The tallest trees are usually right along the shoreline. Why? Because they're the only ones that are getting some sun. All those spruces, those black spruces and whatever else is, is in there is all clugged up in a tight little bunch and isn't getting much light and isn't growing much so you often have the tallest trees right along the shore so there you go right into shore and bingo and i i was on a canoe trip where a friend of mine was almost killed this way he was heading toward shore and it was thundering and lightning and raining and i'm yelling no al no 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 and when he was about uh, 20 feet offshore 
the lightning took the top out of a tall birch tree and all this ash and everything came down on his head into the canoe. Fortunately, nobody was burned. But if he'd have been on shore at that time, he would have been fried. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like there's actually this cone of protection that extends out about 45 degrees from the top of the tallest tree. Best plan is to try to see, stay within that cone of protection. Not so close so you get nailed, not so far out, you know, uh, that you get nailed too. And so, and then they have, I, I, some years ago, I hate to keep ranting, but this was another actually funny story. Um, no, it's I, fine. Go on. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not a problem at all. Oh, yeah, yeah. All the time all right. in the world. Yeah. So I applied for, uh, there was a, a position of the director of the Minnesota Outward Bound School. So I applied for that. I didn't get it, but I was uh, did two days of interviews with those guys, and it was fun, and I learned a lot. And, um, and I said, okay, I said, what do you do if your kids are in camp, camped out, and there's a big lightning storm? He says, well, he says, uh, you get out of your, you get out of your tent, you, go, <clears throat> you, you put your rain gear on, you get out of your tent, and you go find a low-lying area. So I says to him, I said, <clears throat> this is one of the instructors, I said, really? You guys really do that? I said, come on. It's 10 o'clock at night, black as pitch raining bloody murder, lightning's lighting up the skies, and you're all in a tent, and you're all in your tents, you're nice and warm, and you're going to now tell everybody, get out, put rain gear on, let's go slosh through this mess and find a low laying. Do you do that? No. So I said, well, why are you telling me you do that? He says, because it's expected. I said, well, but you don't do it. He says, no. He says, but we got to put when the parents of these kids and so forth ask us what we do, he says, that's the party line. That's what we got to tell them, but we don't do it. So you know what? Instead of giving people stupid things like this that they're not going to do, because, you know, there's no guarantees in the wilderness. I mean, we can get killed by a tree falling or in a rapid or, or capsizing in a lake or burned up or whatever the case might be. We're, one of the reasons we're going there is the adventure of it. Yeah, we want yeah. to be careful. We don't want to get hurt. But you know, if you eliminate all of the possible things that can happen, then you might as well be sitting in your living room watching TV. Yeah, but okay? but but that's not risk free either. My advice is totally different. I'd say, okay, here's what you do. First of all, make sure you have a plastic ground cloth inside your tent. No, don't put it under the floor like people who haven't spent much time out in the woods suggest. <laughs> that way, if you get water in your tent, which if you're in a low-lying area and it rains long enough and hard enough, you will, the water will be trapped under the plastic and at least you'll be dry. Second, take your foam pad and double it in half. Then sit on it, okay, uh, with your just your butt and your feet touching the pad and just sit there and hope you don't get struck by lightning. At least if you do, you'll burn your butt and you'll burn your feet, but you'll probably be okay as long as you're on a double layer of foam and there's no water in your tent. Yeah, you're, si you're sitting on an insulator. Yeah. yeah, it's not 100% sure, no. but it makes more sense than getting out and dressing up and going hiding under trying to find some low-lying area and getting hypothermia before the night's over. Yeah. So, anyway... Yeah, I mean that that thing about staying home. I mean, a lot of people get injured in their own homes, and I know, and I know that that's because they spend a lot of time in their own homes. You know, so there's you know notorious kitchens are notoriously dangerous places for accidents, whether it's slipping over on tiles or doing things with knives or or what have you. But people 
being at home is not risk-free. And then the other thing that people will quite happily do, even if they're happy to go on a on a wilderness canoe trip, is they'll quite happily get in a vehicle, get in a mini back of a minivan, which some of which might not even have seat belts. You know, in some of these places that you're getting, you know, transited around, but they'll happily get into a vehicle, go to wherever they're going, um, and that's probably statistically one of the most dangerous parts of the trip is that there's a is a vehicle journey but they're not even worrying about that because it's so commonplace for people to take that risk now you know somebody once asked me you know what's the most important person on a canoe trip i replied an auto mechanic (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i I remember watching an interview with you on youtube somewhere and i I don't recall who did the interview with you they they cut it up into a number of pieces so apologies to whoever that was maybe i'll try and find it and link it in the in the show notes on my website that go with this um but i remember you saying that sometimes people ask you about you know cliff what do i do if i fall in the middle of a big lake and your answer was you don't you don't die (laughs) yeah you know yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, that's that's right. People are so afraid when they if like do like do do uh, these Canadian trips. Uh, their their first concern usually is they're going to get eaten by a bear. The second concern is they're going to drown in a rapid. I mean, those are realistic fears. Uh, when I my I remember my and I'm not embarrassed to say this, but my very first uh, serious canoe trip was 21 days on the Hood River. Mm-hmm. Or 31 days on the Hood River. That's in, 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 And I was afraid, I, I was concerned that I might not come back alive. So I actually increased my life insurance <laughs> for my wife and family. I mean, that's, I was paranoid. I mean, this is just a growing experience. You know, as you know, the more time we spend outdoors, the more comfortable we are with it until we wake up in the morning and, hey, this is home. Yeah. Uh, but it takes a while to do to develop that it's not something you can read about it just that you you know you you got to be uh comfortable uh when you're so other so i do under you know i do understand that fear but the truth is if you're going to die on a canoe trip probably it's going to be one or two ways probably you're going to die crossing a big lake and then you capsize in the middle of it uh then you are just dead uh, there's no, there's not going to be any rescue. This canoe over canoe rescue thing is cute for the Boy Scouts, but uh, you know what? If uh, if you can do a canoe over canoe rescue, you probably wouldn't have tipped over to begin with because the waves weren't that big. In fact, um, and I look back, there were two times that I came, we came close to dying on a canoe trip. I'll tell you what those were. The first time was on the Blood Vein River in Ontario. We were approaching Lake Winnipeg. Uh, there was five canoes, and we were going around a bend, and my boats were spread out across the river. Just then, a float plane decided, came whirring around the bend behind us, and all of a sudden, he saw us, and he was going too slow to, sh- uh, to get airborne and too fast to shut down hmm. what to do. He immediately veered for uh, the bush. And poured on the power, and he climbed up. And I remember one of his pontoons was, oh, gee, six feet over my head. So we almost got hit by a full plane. The second time was on a river called the 
uh, was it the Thluiesa? I think it was the Thluiesa, which flows into Hudson Bay. And we were, every day we were into caribou. I mean, tens of thousands of them every day, walking through our camp at night, swimming in the rivers. Regrettably, most of those big herds have pretty much disappeared now. That's that's another story. But anyway, so th- we were going through a little canyon. Well, it was a canyon on river, so just a big uh, just wall on river left. And the wall was probably maybe 25 feet high, 20 feet high, 25 feet, something like that. And there was a herd of, I don't know, a few thousand caribou. And, and the alpha male was walking back and forth looking for a place to cross. It was a class two, low class two rapid there. And he was trying to figure out a way to cross. Now, my wife Susie and I were in our canoe and we were snugged up against the wall on river left, just real quiet, just watching this guy go, this alpha male going back and forth. And then he decided he could make it. So he jumped. And when he jumped, his hooves missed Susie's head by two feet. Huh. I could feel the wind hit me in the back. And it was like that. She almost got killed by a caribou. <laughs> so I just bring I just bring up this story because things are not how they always appear when you see some of these movies and things whenever they do a wilderness show it's always somebody's going to get eaten or hurt by a bear that's very very rare it's so rare that it makes national and international headlines okay that's probably not going to happen yeah all right especially and i would say even less so in the deep wilderness because those bears aren't as paranoid as the ones in places like Yellowstone National Park and some of these places where there's lots of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. they, they're not they're not as familiarized at all. I mean, I, I've I mean, I had one bear encounter briefly on the Barrens, and I was not far away from shore, and I heard this kind of snort, and there was a bit of a bank and out of the I, I actually thought it was a moose at first i kind of got the scale wrong i just saw this kind of dark shoulder um in the on the edge of the bushes coming out and then i realized it was a bear um and i went to get my camera to take a photograph but i clonked my either my camera box or my paddle and it took one look at me and just ran off into the bushes and that's kind of the reaction i like when i see yeah. a, a bear so uh, that's exactly right. That's usually what happens with grizzlies. Grizzlies are very curious. They'll come rushing in. Once they figure out who you are, they they take off. A classic example of that was uh, there's a story in Canoeing Wild Rivers about our wedding when Susie and I got married. And uh, we were camped on a high, below a high falls on um, the Hood River, and the two guys were. This is a funny story too. Two guys were out fishing. Well, one of the guys that was out fishing uh, was our marriage commissioner. He'd been certified by the Canadian government to marry Susie and I at Wilberforce Falls on the Hood River. They give you thirty days, I think, to to do that. So he was our marriage commissioner. So they were pulled up on like a gravel bar right below the falls fishing. And uh, before the canoe trip, uh, which Susie was a member, she was the only woman on that trip. She was, you know, she was, Susie was 47 years old before she ever got married. And she was very possessive about how things should be done. And she was really concerned. 
She said, you know, I don't know, something could happen to our marriage commission. We really should certify another guy as a marriage <laughs> just in case something happens. Come on, Susie. No, 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 I mean it. So she sort of hammered me on this a bit. So here we are. We're, we're, uh, we're sitting around. Uh, I'm cooking, okay? And all of a sudden, one of the guys, and I, at this point, I, I'm about 70 or 80 yards from the fall, something like that. And one of the guys looks up and he says, oh, my God, Cliff, there's a bear coming in. You better get your gun. Okay. So I grab my rifle and I'm looking out there and there's this grizzly running in across the top of a hill. Okay. Now, they say you can tell the size of a grizzly by the size of their ears. Uh, a, a big grizzly will have small ears and a little grizzly will, compared to his head, have big ears. This guy had no ears. Okay. <laughs> All right, so he's come loping across and loping across, and I'm just standing there dumbfounded watching this. And all of a sudden, he, he that was probably his favorite fishing spot. So he gets down there to the gravel bar, and these guys are like, I'm not kidding you, six feet from this bear. And all of a sudden, he just like a Walt Disney movie, he all of a sudden like puts the skids on, like you see in like, just like that. And then he just sniffs around and sniffs around and sniffs around. And as soon as he realizes there's humans. He turns around. He runs out of there faster than his legs can carry him. So that's pretty typical with grizzlies. Grizzlies will 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 usually run away like that. Um, black bears and sometimes they're a lot more persistent. At least the black bears I've dealt with. I've never. I've only had one grizzly I've dealt with that didn't run away right off. That was on the Fond du Lac River. Oh, by the way, the Porcupine River. Where are you going? Hey. You're going to see bears, buddy. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of bears in there. And I, it, was, it was early in the morning, and he was a big, huge grizzly. He was a grizzly, and he came right into camp. And I actually, I fired a shot right above his head, knocked a little bark off, and, uh, and hit him in the head. And he just turned around and looked at me like, who are you? You know, and then he went around. Uh, there's actually, there's a picture of him in uh, that book who you were kind enough to lend me uh, to use your photos in uh, uh, Camping's Top Secrets. That, that you'll see, he's right there by Big okay. Teapot. I'll check that out. Yeah, I mean, I know the book, but I'll, I'll, I'll have another. I haven't got it in front of me. I've got your Expedition Canoeing book here in front of me. Um, yeah, your other ones, that other one's up on the shelf somewhere, but I'll have a look. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he was only at that point, uh, what were we, 15 feet apart, 20 feet? And I just talk to him. Just, I know this sounds hokey as all get out, but you can talk to him. I just keep watching his ears. His ears are up. As long as his ears were up, I didn't have a problem. If his ears dropped, I probably would have had to shoot him because he was only 20 feet away. He could cover that distance in a fraction of a second. But he he listened, and then he turned around and very stately walked away. But that's probably the, the only one that I've had that was really a real cause for concern. Um but I wouldn't worry about bears. I tell bear the whole bear thing is way overrated, and you can camp your whole life and canoe your whole life, and just be lucky if you see one. It'll be yeah. a thrill. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. I, I guess we'll we'll you know I want to respect your time, Cliff. But one last question, unless we go off yeah. on any other tangents, which I'm happy to do, of course. You've had a you know a full and, and varied career in in the outdoors and and you've done lots of different trips. Um, 
in terms of if you if you could go back and give yourself some advice as a younger man knowing what you know now and the experiences you've had now what would be the main pieces of advice that you'd give yourself when you were I don't know 30 35 something like that back back in the day well I think the main piece of advice I would give me is advice that I took and that is that skills are more important than things Mm -hmm. Uh, if you know really be a good paddler uh, really develop your camping skills uh, and um, be also be willing to in fact you said uh, you emailed me something earlier about he was exactly right there something about when an adventure you want to push the push the adventure until it keeps being an adventure, but not a misadventure. Oh, Colin Mortlock, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or um, uh, the Swedish, who was the uh, the Swedish um, uh, the Swedish explorer in the 1930s? It'll come to me now. Stephenson was mm-hmm. once one returned from one of his many expeditions. Uh, Mr. Stephenson, uh, did you have any adventures? And he replied, no, no adventures, just experiences. <laughs> People who have adventures need help or something, something to, to that effect. So, yeah, so I would say skills are more important than things. And don't think you have to keep searching and searching to – don't, don't think you have to have the very top skills either. I consider myself an intermediate capable whitewater paddler. I'm real happy with that. And I don't think if I were a hotshot, super top Olympic whitewater paddler, that wouldn't make me do these trips any more safely. What makes me do the trip safely is, again, going back to knowing I have more skill than guts. So, you know, that's the only... The only advice that I would give people is play down your skills. You're, you're, you, you need good skills, okay? But you don't need to be Olympic class either. You can do any canoe trip in the wildest rivers in the world by being where I am. That's an intermediate whitewater paddler. I'm comfortable in class two, three rapids. You get above three, okay, I'm out of here, all right? Mm-hmm. Because you know what? In a wilderness trip, you don't paddle stuff over three. If you do, you're stupid. You know, oh, and then the, the other advice I would give, but see, I took all this advice. I would say read everything in print on the subject, even if it was written 50 or 100 years ago, because those guys had good advice too. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. the equipment has changed. Yeah, but the skills, well, the skills have gotten better, that's for sure, today. But other than that, the mechanics of doing a wilderness canoe trip haven't really changed. Uh, Safe camping, uh, comfortable camping really hasn't changed. It's just equipment. So I guess if people people think that they're going to up their abilities by buying something that's the newest and the greatest, you're wrong, okay? What you're going to do is you find something that works for you 
and you keep using it until you're sure something better has come along. And you won't get that information by reading a review in a magazine or online because in order to see whether equipment actually is going to work, you have to use it for a long, long time. That's why some of the stuff that gets some of the high ratings in outdoor magazines and reviews online, either the reviewer gets the stuff at low cost or they get it for free or they, they take it out for a week and they use it and that's the end of the story. Uh-uh. you got to use it for a long, long time because you'll discover subtleties when you do. For example, um, the old Optimus 111B stove to me is still the finest gasoline stove that's ever been built. And I have a whole, I've got like eight or nine stoves here. Okay, they all work, but nothing runs as good or is as good as the 111B. Everything else has some flaws in it. So I stick with that. Why haven't I embraced the newer model? Because it's not as reliable, because I call it, you have to put it together. And anything you have to put together is going to have a valve that can fail or a hose that can fail. So I stick with some of these old things, and then some people look and say, oh, Cliff, he's an old guy. He's not willing to come into the future. Oh, yes, I am. You should see the $300 carbon fiber paddle I have and the $3,000 canoe I'm paddling. Yeah, I'm willing to go, you know, and you look at my, and I got a great GPS and the list goes on. But there's also a core of things that work well and sometimes even work better than the newest and the latest and the greatest. So don't change if it works for you. That's all I'm Absolutely. Saying. And I think that reliability is, is a key thing. You know, a, a lot of people don't go out for very long or they, you know, I've had criticism, you know, like I, I'll put, people ask me questions and I'm happy to give advice um, about what works for me or at least relate what works for me. It's not necessarily even advice, you know, and I write blog posts like you do and I say, well, this works for me. And then I will have somebody email me and say, Paul, you've just put this article together about the equipment you use you know, that those boots are quite expensive or that, you know, whatever you use is quite expensive or that that jacket is, you know, the one that you say is really durable, but they're quite expensive. Can you recommend something that's, you know, less expensive? I'm kind of like, no, because A, I don't have experience of those things, so I'm not going to recommend anything other than what I've got some experience of. And secondly, the reason I use those things is because I'm out in the woods hundreds of days a year and... I need the stuff to last. If people are just going out for a few weekends here and there, they can probably get away with cheaper stuff or less durable stuff. But for people like you, for people like me who are in need of stuff that I don't have time to keep replacing stuff multiple times a year if it keeps breaking. I need it to I need it to, you know, be cleaned, put away, take it out the next time and it work pretty much all the time. And when you find those things, you tend to cherish them. That's right. And some people, you know, some people call that being opinionated. I have another word for it. I call it wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And as you say, it comes with experience. It comes with experience. You you just made me think of a follow-up question there because several times in answering the previous question you about the advice you'd give yourself, you said, oh, you took the advice. Was there, was there someone in particular who was able to give you advice or that you look to for advice when you, or was it just that wide reading that you talked about? Um, you know, if, if some of your listeners have my flagship book, Canoeing Wild Rivers, and if you look in there, I'm not the only writer in there. There's 30-some top-shelf people from all over 
internationally that have contributed to that book, okay? So uh, I don't know it all. Sometimes I have to look at that book myself because I can't remember what's, what's all in there because there's so many different people involved in it. So yes, I had a number of mentors that are in that book. One was Bob O'Hara. He's all over that book. There were some Canadians in there that I have learned a great deal from. Just about everybody in that book I have learned stuff from. And so, yes, they were all my mentors. And that goes back to what we said to begin with. How do you learn? First of all, read all the books in print. Not just the newest and the greatest, but the oldest one, too. Two, attend canoe clubs. Uh, because you're going to get advice. Actually, that's how can the book Canoeing Wild Rivers began. It began with advice from, you know, people, hardcore people from canoe clubs. Uh, because I wanted to get that information out without cluttering up a book with all this how to paddle stuff. Because if you do that, then you don't have room for the nuts and bolts of making the trips. Yeah. So do that. Uh, see videos by all means. Okay. Watch some of these videos like the ones that, that you've just done and that you can continue to do. You're going to learn a lot from that. And you know, it's amazing what you can learn from videos. I would encourage people to get the Path of the Paddle videos by Bill Mason. Now, Bill mm -hmm. Mason, he's gone. he's been dead now, I guess, I don't know, 15 years maybe. He made some great films. He made Path of the Paddle, uh, then he made singles, doubles, whitewater, doubles, whatever. Uh, they were originally on 16-millimeter uh, film, but now they're on CDs, whatever. I'm sure you can get them at the library, okay? But you'll really learn the Canadian style of canoeing. And one of the problems that we actually have is because there's not, remember, we're a fringe of the fringe sport. So if you sign up, I don't know how it is in the UK, but here in the States and in Canada, primarily, if you sign up for a class, a whitewater canoeing class, what they're going to do is they're going to put you in a hot little whitewater boat. And they're going to teach you in that. Well, you are all by yourself in a boat that's maybe about eight feet long. You can spin around on a dime. You can pop into eddies. You can do all sorts of things, go over falls, all kinds of things. You can't do that with a 17-foot tripping boat. It's a different style. Yeah, so what yeah. you learn in the, um, in the Bill Mason videos, you'll see him take a 16 or 17-foot wood canvas canoe and paddle some real dicey rapids doing it with finesse and care. And that's the kind of style you have to learn in order to make it down a Canadian river. The hot boat instruction that you get at most canoe schools, be honest with you, it's not going to do you any good because you're not going to be paddling that type of boat to begin with. Number two, the boat you are going to be paddling, you can't do that with it. I don't care how good you are, it won't do it. Okay, which brings us back to a premise we made earlier, and that is you're only as good as the boat you're paddling. And what you use in a wilderness trip is a lot different than what you use for a day trip down a little Whitewater River. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, so I, that's probably the best advice that I can give people who want to do trips in Canada and Alaska and whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good advice. That's good advice. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, do you have your you have your website, but do you have any other places? Do you do Facebook or Instagram or any of those things? I know people are always interested in in those sorts of things. 
Um, no, but I think if they go on my website, which is cliffcanoe.com, I say there's got a whole bunch of blogs on there that they can read. Uh, they can contact me. We can email back and forth. I love doing that, by the way, so I would encourage that. There's all kinds of pictures on there. Um, most of the books that are on there, regrettably, I can't uh, sell and can't I can't sell in the UK simply because it's just too expensive to ship them. Understood. Understood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It costs as much to the postage costs as much yeah, as the book. Uh, yeah. But, so um, I, I think if people want to get hold of some of your books, uh, I think they can, they can get some through booksellers here. And, and, yeah, you can get you can get them through I think libraries there. And you know if uh, if uh, if I can permit one last little thing, sure. I wrote a new little book about a year ago. It's called Justin Cody's Race to Survival, and this book came about because when I go to the Boundary Waters or Quetico, I noticed that the average age of the person going there is in their fifties now. So my question was, how do we get young people involved in the sport? You can see it at the, the shows, the events, too, paddling events. Everybody's old. There's not many young people There's coming in. There's a lot in. of gray beards around at those uh, events. <laughs> I, I came up with an idea, and I said, you know, kids, young kids, uh, young people, teenagers, whatever, who like this outdoor stuff, they're going to read about it, just like I did. But the problem is most kids don't know if they like it or not because they, they got their head stuck in their cell phone. So I said, I think what I want to do is I'm going to try to write a riveting uh, adventure novel set in Canada, okay? But it's actually going to be a how-to book. In other words, it's going to be the story will be fictional, but virtually everything that happens in the story, except there's a few obvious things that obviously are pure fiction, but everything that actually happens in the story to this young man actually did happen, not necessarily to me, but to friends I know. So, mm -hmm. so the fiction really isn't fiction. It's just nonfiction out of place. But then interspersed with that, there's going to be a whole bunch of how-to stuff, from how to, how to paddle his canoe to stormproof your camp, make a fire, rig a tarp, the list goes on. And basically – it's a story about a kid who is always on his cell phone, flunking in school, makes a deal with the school. His grandfather is this wilderness guru, promised to take some, says he'll take him on a month-long trip in Canada and straighten him out. And the kid's, kid kid's supposed to take good pictures and keep a diary. And if all goes well and he comes back and presents it later, he'll get passed in the subjects that he's failing. Well, he doesn't want to go. He hates going. But ultimately what happens is his grandfather is whisked away by the Chicago Mafia. <laughs> and he returns later. But the kid is left and he, has, he, he thinks he has to get to the float plane 200 miles away. And it's all he has to get him there is a little day pack that they had for lunch because everything else is gone. It's thrown over the falls by the Mafia. And he has a book that his grandfather wrote. That contains everything he needs to know. But the kid doesn't like to read. Well, he has to. So that's kind of the story. That's kind of the storyline. And um, it was uh, actually quite problematic getting it published. I thought it would be easy after uh, all the books I've done. But it's a funny thing. Every publisher I queried didn't want to read it. Really? I queried 40 publishers. They didn't want to read it because the fiction publishers said, 
well, we don't do nonfiction. And the nonfiction publisher said, we don't do fiction. Nobody could see an out-of-the-box book that's different. But if you have, I would say to them, if you have a teenager in your family that uh, likes the outdoors or isn't sure that they do, the story will keep them occupied, trust me. And But they'll learn a bunch of stuff in the process. Uh, surprisingly, a lot of adults like, like it too, so I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But... Um, but anyway, I think, I think the best stuff that's aimed at young people works on multiple levels, you know, like some of the, you know, some of the Pixar movies, you know, the, the animated movies, you know, they, they work for the parents and they work for the kids as well. So. Yeah. Well, anyway, you know, if they can find a copy of that at their library there, that'd be great. Just um, in Cody's yeah. Race to Survival, yeah? Yeah, or they can, you know, they can download an ebook if they want. Yeah. Hopefully, in the next month, we will also have it available as a Kindle reader. Okay, so, cool. Kindle, well, but I was I just still... I was just looking here on Amazon in the UK, Cliff, and a lot of your books are available one way or the other. Um, oh. Certainly, some of the some of the the sort of headline, you know, canoeing wild rivers and camping's top secrets, and some oh. of your some of your other ones are they're all on here as well. Some of them are secondhand, but there is a, there's a lot of the current issue ones on there. But I can't see the one you just told me about. I yeah. I did see, I did see it on your website, and I've seen you yeah. um, share it on Facebook. It's right? not on it, that one's not on Amazon mm. because we don't have the kin. That's Kindle. Right. So we don't have the Kindle file up yet. We should have it up within the next uh, uh, two or th two weeks or so. Mm -hmm. We the, the PDF they can uh, the PDF is available on my website, but the PDF I don't doesn't read well on a on a phone. You mm -hmm. need a, something bigger to, to read. Yeah. But anyway, it's you know it's just a thought. Uh, but I think they will they can sign. The other thing, if they want to go on my uh, website, they can sign up for the blogs i mean this is it's all free it doesn't cost anything yeah. that way when a new blog comes out they'll they'll be alerted but i mm -hmm. think they'll find a lot of fun information yeah. Yeah. and if and if people want to seek out your books on your wikipedia page i've just noticed um there's a list of your books uh there and all the isbn numbers are there as well so people can search them out in libraries or local bookstores or what have you so yeah well yeah well it's great. Well, I hope uh, I hope to hear from some of your listeners. And gee whiz, it's been fun chatting with it you. It has. It's been good. I feel like we've only got started, Cliff, but we've been talking for two and a half hours now. So. Well, have we really? Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, how are you going to pare this thing down to? What do you pare it down to? I, I uh, don't. I don't really, to be honest with you. Unless unless somebody says something that they wish they hadn't, I, I'll just leave it as it is. I'll tidy it up slightly, but yeah, I mean, there's nothing in there that. I'm not happy for people to listen to, and I'm assuming you're the same. So it's all well, good hey, stuff. In the in the future, if uh, you come up with some specific topic or thing that you want to hash over, uh, give me a holler back again. But in any case, I got I want to say again, I really admire uh, that you're doing you, you do those rivers like that alone in those big boats. Uh, that I admire that a lot. Well, thank you, Cliff. That means a lot coming from you. And um, and secondly, it's just been just a treat to finally get to see you in real life. And uh, you know, and it's really it's really fun. I've emailed back and forth with 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 some uh, UK paddlers, and it's it's been fun. Everybody's been wonderful. 
yeah so. yeah there's a good there's a good community over here and uh, i'm sure you'll hear from some more after this one i hope you do after this session so i just want to say thank you very much for your time cliff it's really appreciated and i definitely think the scope there for us to do a round two at some point there's there's lots of things we didn't really talk about or we could go into certain areas in more depth so it'd be brilliant to as you say jump on some other topics in future that'd be great yeah, you're you're a call my friend okay and here's hoping one day our paddles will cross in real life well i hope so i keep meaning to get over to one of those big um north american canoe events you know that you were mentioning canoe copia i've never been over to any of those either in canada in you know toronto or canoe copia or anything so i, I should really do that one year well i'm sure we, they'd love to have you mm. no but i meant more about bump because you go to some of those don't you do you still go to those and talk at those yeah there are basically three shows here one is called uh, quiet adventure symposium that's the uh, first week of our March this year. It's the last day of February. It's leap year. And then following that, the second week in March is Canoe Copia in Madison, Wisconsin. That thing's huge. Mm. That mm -hmm. draws like 10,000, 15,000. And then in April, there's Midwest Mountaineering Canoe Event. Uh, that's in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And that is in April. So those are really the big three that we, that we have here. Canoe Copia is the largest. Quiet Adventure Symposium is just a one-day show, and it draws maybe 1,500 people. But it's a wonderful show because the emphasis is, is on education, not selling stuff, which is unique among shows. Yeah. And uh, Midwest Mountaineering is another great show. Uh, so those are the big three here. And then, of course, there's the Toronto show, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hopefully our paths cross at some point, as you say. That would be good. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, be well. Yes, you too. Well, thank you again for your time, Cliff, and um, we'll sign off there. But I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. Thank you. All right. My pleasure. Well, thanks again to Cliff for his time and sharing his wisdom in such a, an animated way. For me, that conversation was just an absolute delight and I hope you enjoyed it at least half as much as I did as well. All the links to manufacturers, equipment, gear, etc. that we discussed, people, books, all of those things that we mentioned in this podcast, if there's a relevant link, those links are included in the show notes on the page dedicated to this podcast, which you can go straight to at paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 51. That's paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 51. And while you're there, if you're not already subscribed to my email updates from my blog, then please join while on my site at paulkirtley.co.uk. UK. There's a sign-up form on pretty much every page on my site and then you'll be amongst the first to know about not only my podcasts when they're released but also any videos and articles on my blog as well as other less public online materials that I share. In particular, I have some really good free live webinars coming up, but you have to be on my mailing list to know about them. So make sure you're subscribed, even if it's just for the webinars. 
that just brings me to saying thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting these podcasts. Thank you. I really appreciate you spending the time listening to these and I hope they bring you lots of value. If they do, please feel free to share this podcast or any of the podcasts with your network, whether that's on social media or emailing your favourite episode to your friend that you think might find this beneficial. It doesn't have to be a mass splurge on social media. Just sharing it with somebody who would appreciate it, I think, is a really nice thing to do. You can almost give it to them as a present. So please spread the word. Helps me get more guests on these podcasts. The more popular they are, the more likely I am to get various guests on this podcast. So I look forward to bringing you another podcast in the series before too long. Until then, take care and enjoy the outdoors. <laughs>